house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. computer I go online welcome. welcome and my breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast found dead and buried by Alia Shawkat in the Oregon woods. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died and we are here to perform the autopsy, except not this week because instead of talking about a movie... We're doing a mailbag episode. I am your host, Chris File. I'm here, as always, with my fellow small bakery co-owner, Joe Reed. Got my oily cakes all ready to sell yes. for a, a tidy but humane profit. Uh, we are a podcast that is rooting for the very soothing, calming movie about capitalism and friendship this season. Okay, let's have a quick sidebar about that because as we are speaking just yesterday new york film critic circle voted for their awards and their top prize went to uh in my mind the most deserving first cow the kelly reichardt film first cow which to which in my mind as well to which chris has been referring about alia shawkat in the oregon woods and uh oily cakes and such so we both really love this movie marketplace bakeries i feel like the fact that, like, this doesn't win New York Film Critics Circle for best f- picture, best film, in a non-pandemic year, which is nothing against either the film or the New York Film Critics Circle. But I think it's it's a quirk of this odd Oscar season with limited options and, mm-hmm. and smaller films have been able to stay afloat in the season also smaller longer. films that were actually released prior to the pandemic hitting right right although yes i think that is true although i don't i think that if first cow had been re- hadn't been released in theaters before the pandemic i think it would still be doing equally as well like i don't know if that's necessarily as i guess it's there's some of that nostalgia of just like this was the last movie i saw in a theater before the pandemic so yeah maybe mm-hmm. that does play into it but I, it's this sort of, um, well, whatever we can, we can ease this into our first question, but I do think there's an interesting angle with something like first cow in terms of like, what makes this award season so different, which is that Mm -hmm. a movie like first cow, if it was last year, it would be a great movie. It would be justice for first cow. I can't believe nobody's talking about this movie. It's so good. Why isn't it getting any kind of attention at the end of the year? It's, you know, yada, yada, yada. And now, I still think it probably has just as much of a chance at Oscar nominations as it would have a year ago. Like, I still don't think it's going to show up. Yeah, I don't either. But now, all of a sudden, it's this sort of cause celeb among critics and now like this is a movie that we could end up doing for our podcast if it doesn't get any oscar nominations in a few years well and i don't i i mean like to talk a little bit about the pandemic i know we said we weren't going to talk about the pandemic on this episode but um i 
I I still think that it would be. It's not like it's winning critics prizes now because there's no op. Right. It's not that there's no options, but there is less like competition that this like very gentle, quiet. That doesn't mean it's not deep movie. You know, doesn't have to strong arm through a lot of louder competition. There is, you know, we you have sort of here listed here on our uh, on our agenda that a lot of the common questions we got were sort of about the class of twenty twenty. What's going to happen mm-hmm. with the with the class of twenty twenty? And I sort of got to thinking, and I'm like the. Awards economy is so off kilter this year that it's sort it's a it's impossible still I think to predict the Oscars and it's December and it's and I know the Oscars are later this year but like right. normally by this time things have really started to firm up and it's just like it's so impossible because the choices are so sort of far flung but also because the economy of Oscar movies is so outward like the blockbusters didn't play and we didn't expect or very early on we sort of expected that the blockbusters were not going to play this year or were going to open much much later but like i think sort of from very early on we kind of cut those out so like you know uh west side story and dune and whatever big movies right whatever big movies that we thought could have been oscar plays because as much as people you know deride the oscars for being about movies that nobody sees they're not they are they nominate movies that people see all the time and so with that strata cut out that was one thing but the one thing that i kind of expected to happen that didn't was the sort of middle tier a24 Fox Searchlight, Middle Major mm-hmm. movies, I thought, well, those are just going to go to VOD because why not? And some did. We're getting your um, One Night in Miami's, and eventually we're getting uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, and we're getting... The Focus movie, everything Focus did, they put it in theaters, they worked out this arrangement with Focus and Universal with the... Um, with, like, the AMCs right. and Cinemarks to, like have a profit sharing basically when they do vod a month later so right. like, you are getting the kajillionaires you're getting promising young women right. and news of the world at home but well eventually with the exception of news of the world i think news of the world sort of fits into the the sort of range of movie i'm about to talk about but like i think with certain with kajillionaire and even promising young woman like these are movies that probably would have been in some way or another, too small, too off the beaten path, too whatever, to be part of that like Oscar mainstream, which is what makes part of what makes this year so interesting as an Oscar mm-hmm. year. But I'm I was really surprised that that sort of middle path of movies that like even something like The French Dispatch, which I know we think of it as major, it's Wes Anderson, it's a billion stars, whatever. But you think of like what the commercial prospects for a movie like The French Dispatch might have been, and I'm. I mean, sure, on paper, but at the same time, like, Wes Anderson movies make $50 million. I guess that's true. And I guess and I guess this goes into a thing that is f- way over my head and out of my uh, job description, which is the economics <laughs> of the industry. And I'm just like, I guess I'm surprised that for as much as all these places are going to streaming and, you know, uh, whatever, the HBO Max thing that I don't want to talk about, 
and you know movies opening on Disney Plus and whatever. I guess the economics of it are still it that to me shows the value of theatrical enough that like if the economics weren't there to make it more or at least equally profitable for a movie like the French Dispatch to go to streaming or VOD instead of opening theatrically, that tells me that theatrical still has major value. Mm-hmm. Because why wouldn't you? Because if, you know what I mean? Right. Well, and also because of production shutdowns, like they had to hold on to some content so that they, I hate calling it content. They have to hold on to their movies that they have because like, with, with as long as productions were shut down, right. they may not have movies to put out if they had, you know, just dumped everything on VOD, right. whether it made profit or not. Um, the economics thing, though, I think is going to be one of the most interesting factors in this year's Oscar race, especially for something like First Cow, where it's like, it doesn't seem like it's A24's first priority. That seems like it's Minari, which like... If you want to go for Oscars, that probably seems like the safer bet, um, and that's great. Which, by the way, how wild is it that we're having that conversation, that something like Minari is a safer bet for Oscar? Like, what a cool year this right. is going to end up being if that happens. Like, But I, you also wonder if, like, smaller distributors of these, like, mid-size or small-size movies that you're talking about will have the money to really put behind sure. a campaign. Sure. Whereas, like, Searchlight, which... It doesn't seem like they're operating as autonomously from Disney as it was initially said that they would, right. but like they'll have Disney money to put behind Nomadland, right? You know? But I think you saw this when you saw um, the Toronto Film Festival lineup, and because the Toronto Film Festival is like the epicenter for this strata of movie that I'm talking about, which is non-blockbuster but not in like not tiny. Um, Movie with awards hopeful, awards uh, hope to it. So, like, I'm thinking mm-hmm. of like the new Adrian Lyon movie, uh, Deep Water, that is eventually going mm-hmm. to come out, or like something like The Eyes of Tammy Faye, something like that uh, movie that I think Tom McCarthy is still making called Stillwater, and like who knows whether the Matt Damon one, yes, who knows whether it would have been ready, you know, this year or not. But like that's what I'm talking about in terms of like that middle class of movie, that like Jojo Rabbit type of movie, mm-hmm. Spotlight. Um, you know, eight, 8 billion movies that we've talked about on here, truth and, you know, men, women, and children, whatnot. And some of them are good and some of them are bad. But, like, all of those movies seem to have been, if not cut out completely, like, halved. You know what I mean? Like, we've gotten such a fraction of them this year. And those are the ones mm-hmm. that make up not only the the Oscar conversation in the awards race, but, like, those are our bread and butter because they have – um, definite, genuine Oscar ambition, and not all of them, you know, by definition, are going to be able to do it because there's just too goddamn many of them. Whereas this mm-hmm. year, we're looking at stuff like Minari as an Oscar hopeful that might not have been the case last year, or like, um, I'm trying to think of like what, like I, again, that's why I got into this conversation with First Cow. Like in a normal year, I mean, I think something like Promising Young Woman would have a hard time. Yeah otherwise right um and so many of these things now are you know people are talking about the the stanley tucci colin firth uh gay movie that if that comes out that that's gonna be you know that's not a real thing i mean i kind of don't think so either but because that i will eat my shoe on mike if that's a thing but it is not but what i'm saying is there's at least a glimmer of 
hope on paper for it that like would have never been even close to a thing because there would have been too many other things crowding it out. Like something like, I know you and I have talked off Mike about uh, a movie like never rarely, sometimes always, which won two prizes at New York film critics circle yesterday for its lead actress Mm -hmm. and for its screenplay. I don't love that movie as much as everybody else does. And, but like that is a movie that I think would have been relegated to the realms of wouldn't it have been nice for the people who like it better than we do? Um, mm-hmm. Wouldn't it have been nice if that could have gotten nominated uh, for anything? And now it is winning prizes and there does seem to be critical advocacy for it because this middle class of movies has just not opened. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, I don't know. No, I mean, uh, th- that is all uh, to the point of we don't know uh, what a class of 2020 might be, right. especially just like, you know, you mentioned the you mentioned Supernova. There's a few other things that feel like they are, you know, uh, latching on somehow, like not to keep beating up on that distributor, but Wild Mountain Time. Like right. These movies that right. because there's such a void like they're positioning them in a certain way that's like that's not really what that thing is there's just nothing else in the conversation like this so like or that you can market in this way um right but yeah like especially when people were asking us about uh 2020 they were asking us about things like hillbilly elegy ammonite Those are the two big ones in terms of classic This Had Oscar Buzz. They played uh, uh, either on streaming or at at festivals, and people are seeing them. They had definite, even pre-pandemic, they had definite awards buzz. Yeah. And would have been in the conversation whether there had been a pandemic or not. And so I think those, to me, are like the classic... Uh, ones. And honestly, I am not ruling out that Hillbilly Elegy could get a nomination or two. Like, See, this I'm is not my problem, because eventually I will have to watch the Smellogy. Yeah. <laughs> because we funny. will either have to watch it for this podcast, which would be like a year out, and like uh, y- you can get away from the toxicity of that thing. Uh, or it gets nominated and I have to watch it for <laughs> my job. Yeah. I mean, you could not. Like, you, like, unless you're doing, like, a fully comprehensive thing. Do I need to, is my question, to, like, to have a, a, a you know, aesthetic, uh, personal opinion that is not a regurgitation of someone else's? Well, sure. yeah. But yeah. do I know what the thing is? Do I have a sense? Have I had enough people telling me the minutiae of this movie to, like, be able to talk about what it is? Sure. The gag of the century uh, would be if you were to watch it and just be like, you know, it's not that bad. I keep seeing these people that are like, people are just being mean to this movie. And I'm like, absolutely not. We do not need more movies by rich people telling us what they think poor people are. We don't need it. I'll tell you who I loved it. We don't it. need bootstraps theory. Get out of my face. I tell you who I loved it <laughs> is my mom and my dad. Like, absolutely mm-hmm. loved it. And this is the thing about Famously, your parents are um, in the sound branch, so they'll, yes, they might their support is going to have a ton of sway. Um, but Joe Reed's parents are sound editors. Yeah. But that's the thing about Netflix. Netflix this year is Netflix is the one place where this middle class of movies are getting released because Netflix. Mm-hmm. So, like, you're getting Hillbilly Elegy, you're getting Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is going to end up being like a big Oscar contender. 
so good. Because this class of movie is able to get released. The Five Bloods is another movie that I think um, counts for that. I think, even though I don't think it's going to get Oscar nominations, but you look at something like um, Let Them All Talk on HBO Max, which is now part of at least like the movie conversation. That's something that I think could be a class of 2020 because I don't really. Apparent, we're to- we're being told it's eligible. It's it's eligible. definitely eligible. It's eligible. It is, but we don't really get a sense that they're going to go there. No, it's the not the kind is, of they movie make it, that they would go for either. Like that sort of that sort of um, muddy Soderbergh aesthetic. You know what I mean? Like they don't really they haven't gone for mm-hmm. Soderbergh since uh, they gave him an Oscar and said he had the greatest speech he that it, that they ever heard. But they you know right. he can't get arrested for right. awards anymore <laughs> but it's fine because it's a great movie. but i don't know if they're really gonna do anything for that which is silly because candace burgers would win <laughs> um, Can, well I, I mean i go back and forth because sometimes i think with less to do i think weast is even more impressive like i think that cast is just great top to bottom i think everybody's so the wonderful. movie's fantastic um so yeah class of 2020 Sorry to give you a non-answer, but uh, we don't know, guys. It's so it, it know. definitely feels less plentiful than in past years. Like in past years, we'd been able to rattle off like a good like dozen or so movies that you know would be would be you know class of twenty twenty movies, and then this year it's like we're gonna have to stretch some you know some definitions somehow. And like it's something like like I guess French Exit would fit right. Like something where ahead of time people are yeah, like, Pfeiffer. I don't think that's going to happen. No, I don't um, think it's going to happen. So, or even, but yeah. I don't know. Even something like Tenet, which I guess like will probably get nominations anyway. So whatever, like in technical categories. Um, but his last few movies have been, or at least some, like two of his last four movies, I guess, have been uh, Best Picture nominated. So I guess. I mean, I guess you could say Dunkirk is his best oscar success well inception won more right a bunch I think. dunkirk got him a best director nomination but right. inception won a few which i think dunkirk won none something i don't know hold on let me look i'm not a nolan acolyte yeah no kidding <laughs> Yeah, no kidding, because I despise Tenet. <laughs> uh, can I tell you, I watched Tenet uh, again the next night. <laughs> um, I didn't understand most of it, but I did enjoy watching it. So that is my uh, Tenet It thing. is the wildest thing that that movie got so much uh, bang for... Uh, it's going to be the first movie back in theaters, oh. and it is such a whiff um, oh it's it's a good it's a it felt it felt like watching a real movie again it genuinely did and i and i loved it for that dunkirk won three oscars which i didn't remember inception it, won four i think inception won four hold on dunkirk won editing and both sounds by the way everybody's going to be so mad when tenet gets a sound nomination it's going to be glorious to just watch. copy and paste your old pieces of other nolan movies getting the sound nominations guys. yeah inception one cinematography both sound and then visual effects quite deservedly inception that's the for as much as i did enjoy tenet it made me feel like oh inception is great and we should maybe talk about inception being great because like it is it does a lot of what tenet does so much better but 
Absolutely, especially it does, um, for lack of a better word, dumb shit uh, better than Tenet does. It it does better. It it has better characters. It has a more uh, a story that you can grasp with both hands, and yeah, it has more charismatic performers. Yes, I think that's definitely like even true. to Bicky, who we love here. We're well on the record uh, as of last week saying we love her. Yeah is not good in the movie. I don't know if I would say she's not good, but, like, she's not great. I think Pattinson's easily the best performance in Tenet. Yes. And would watch a whole movie about him, would kind of wish that we would watch the... You probably could have easily made a film with the perspective of that character instead. I know he's the one who knows more, so you want to be, you know, from the other uh, character's perspective. Anyway, anyway, anyway. We're not going to talk about Tenet. Not this time. Um... (laughs) I'll end up you can yelling now watch at it at home safely, listener. <laughs> yes, you can, and you should. It is. I will say for, and this is going to be an obnoxious half second conversation, but I will just say that, like in the realm of uh, streaming screeners, which I have com- opinions about that we're not going to get into, but like some studios are doing the transfer better than others, and like Warner Brothers took care to make sure that their streaming screener for Tenet looks great. Does not look muddled, does not look, you know, pixelated when everything gets very black and and mm-hmm. and uh, dark on the screen, which was a problem when I saw, for example, Relic, not to call out, you know, IFC or anything like that, but, like, Relic is a movie that lives in looking down into dark corridors and seeing the, you know, the inky blackness move around you. And it's like, I couldn't tell what was happening because that's what happened all the time because everything, all the, like, dark colors were, like, blocky well, and pixelated. I mean, that movie's on Hulu. Just watch it on Hulu instead of the screener. I hate conversations about screeners too. Just talk about the movie. You don't have to say fine, but I'm just my screener. But uh, fine, but what I'm I'm not yelling at you. You know, I you know that we agree on this, but like it makes a difference guys, if your shit is on shitty quality screener when you want your you know the whole point is to show up for people uh, in in its best light. Sure. Did you find how many Oscars Inception won? Yeah, four. Before we get yes. before we actually get into the questions, just like our episodes when we would normally have a sixty second plot description, we're twenty minutes in before we get into real yeah. questions. Yeah, Inception one cinematography, both sound and visual effects. Yes. So again, look for Tenet to get nominations at the very least in both sound categories, even though everybody hated the sound mixing in Tenet. All right. I normally think it's fine. I couldn't understand. Half of the that. thing is. At some point, at some point, Christopher Nolan is going to make a movie where everybody is wearing masks. And by the way, this is like this is Christopher Nolan's time is to make the great pandemic movie where everybody is wearing masks all the time and nobody can hear a goddamn word everybody is saying because it's all filtered through uh, masks. Anyway, let's talk about the questions. Let's talk, guys. Thank you for all of your thank questions. You. Once again, we got like well over two hundred questions that we wouldn't be able to fit them all into an episode. So if we don't get to yours, we still love we you. Do. Sorry, we couldn't get to right. it. Uh, we tried to create like a form to some of these questions that we got, but we really appreciate you guys. This is like a fun side episode just for you guys. Yes. All of your burning questions. We thank you. We love doing this at the end of the year as kind of a little palate cleanser for the year. And we will, you mm-hmm. know, be able to recharge our batteries to go, you know, blazing out of the gate in 2021. 
Alrighty, so to start us off with, like, a big one, not to be, like, after we've just been like, look at all this big discourse that we don't want to talk right. about, mostly because it's stupid, but this one I think is good, and this was actually an interesting one that people just wanted to be bad. But, like, I was like, there's things to talk about here. Uh, So, Jonathan asked us, what do you think of the New York Times 25 best actors in the 21st century list? Would you swap anyone in? So, now that I'm seeing this question written out, I realize that I uh, ignored the second part of the prompt. Um, Who would I swap in? Because I had so many opinions about who they did choose. There's a lot of people that you could swap in. I think it's more who would you swap out for a lot of people. Yeah. However... (laughs) Aside from any of the things that they actually wrote within the list, um, that is an unimpeachable top two. Number one was Denzel Washington. Number two was Isabelle Huppert. That's all I have to say yeah. on it. That's the that's the exactly correct top This two. list was pandering to you specifically by putting Isabelle Huppert to me specifically. at number two. I do feel like you've sort of convinced me a little bit to the other one that Denzel has been doing some of his most interesting work this century, although, I don't know. Number one feels very high for somebody whose best performance is still in 1992. But I, okay. I'm standing by that. What, 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 we, we have uh, questions coming up that will help us get into yes. this. But here's the thing. he He's also the most bankable movie star. His movies, even the dumb That's not ones, the list. still make money. That's not the list. The list is acting. Uh, Yes, but, like, he makes those movies compelling. And, like, a wide swath of people agree that he is a compelling actor, regardless of, like, what the movie... I mean, he makes fucking Flight watchable, and it's a terrible movie, and he's brilliant in it. I don't disagree. I think he does make Flight watchable, even though it is a terrible movie except for the crash scene, which is amazing. Um, <laughs> I watch it all the time to just like traumatize myself to like, I, it's like shock therapy or something like that, where it's just like, no, I'll just traumatize myself watching this plane crash scene. Um, I, at the risk of sort of being the Aretha Franklin being like wonderful gowns, beautiful gowns. I do say like the design of this list is it's so pretty to scroll through with the pictures moving mm-hmm. and with the text sort of floating. I think it's, you know, Whatever money they're shelling out for visual design uh, at the Times is worth it from a reader's perspective. The list itself feels very responsible, feels very carefully assembled, and sort of... I feel like it felt responsive. Like, they had... For some of these people, they have, like, one idea, and then, like, that idea, like is used to bolster their entire positioning of that one performer on this list. Yes. Yes. Which is like, and in some ways that is good. I think when you, you talk about like their entry on Julianne Moore and that it sort of becomes this treatise on Gloria Bell, which I was very, very happy for because people Mm -hmm. don't talk about enough about how wonderful she is in that movie. And sometimes that movie gets sort of swept under the rug of like, you know, middle tier Julianne Moore performances. So I did appreciate something like that. I appreciate that there are, there is an eye towards international actors on this, but again, sometimes the list felt more like covering bases and trying to make sure that nobody was going to yell at them. And like, that's good when it comes to like, accounting for possible blind spots in the culture but like mm-hmm. i i i scratched my head at some of these entries Catherine deneuve for a 21st century list seems insane 
I agree. Uh, West Duty for a 21st century list seems insane. Um, Keanu Reeves, as high as he was, is such um, this weird Keanu Reeves uh, optimism thing going on with the the um, I keep wanting again. I always call it Jack Reacher when it's not Jack Reacher, but you know who I'm talking about the the man on the street, uh, John, John Wick. Wick. Um, a series that I cannot see because the uh, first one puts his dog in peril, and I, I can't oh, watch more that. so than peril from what it. I am from what I am given to understand. Yeah, from what I, I have had people spoil it for me, I was like, great, never <laughs> watching this. Series. So like, I can't, I can't. Do I, it. I again the the with the appreciation for those movies so rides this line between like. I love these movies, and isn't it fucked up that I love these movies? Isn't it funny that I love these movies? Which is, like, my least favorite form of cultural enthusiasm. See, also, everybody fucking flipping out for Borat this season, this year. Um, See, also, college dorm rooms. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, like, whatever. Like, the Keanu thing aside, um, I think it does make some really good picks. I think Willem Dafoe for a 21st century list is very good. I think Oscar Isaac makes tons of sense. Viola, Saoirse, Tilda, uh, Zhao Tao on this list made me very, very happy. Hell yeah. Um, Hell yeah. Not all the write-ups did it for me. The Nicole Kidman one, I love Manola Dargis in general, but it made me furious that people are still calls the hours making, or something. calls it a polite yawn of a movie, which middle finger in the air to you. Fuck you. And also... Like, we're still making jokes about the nose in 2020. Like, it has been almost two full decades. Like, we could maybe stop with that really dumb and easy joke and re- and recognize the good work that she's doing. And this is all in a write-up yeah, that is saying Manola. how great She needs Nicole to watch Kidman the hours is. again. <laughs> also, as I tweeted at the time, the Melissa McCarthy write-up is so high on her performance in Spy that it completely like sweeps aside her performance in the heat which to me is the exact opposite of what we should be doing not the exact opposite she's great in spy talk about her great she's in spy she's even better in the heat i think the heat is a better movie than spy um and that annoys me (laughs) because things annoy me (laughs) there was also though chris and maybe this is something you want to talk about a little bit because i've been talking a lot um there was criticism about this list that it was solely about movies and um, talking about the great actors of the century without acknowledging any kind of television work is missing half the picture of what acting is these days, which... I mean, they included Nicole Kidman. She's basically going to be a TV actor from now yeah, on. Yeah, but they did only um, talk about her film performances. And, like... True. I mean, I think really what this list is is about movie stars. Right. Which, like... That that explains Michael B. Jordan being in there. Um, it explains, like, uh, I guess it's just like, uh, to me, it was more about, it was a list about screen presence, which explains Catherine Deneuve being on there because she still absolutely has that, but she doesn't really make movies that really uh, register in the culture that much uh, in all. the 21st century, yeah. which is what the title of the list yep. was. Um I mean, TV, like, I I think they were also looking for breadth. And a lot of, like, the great TV performers that we think of, we think of them for, like, one or two performances. Um, you know, or 
I mean, the 21st century is not that old. It is, uh, yeah. it, we are still in a young century. Yeah. So, to me, like, if you were trying to think of a Carrie Washington to put on there, like, we know Carrie Washington from TV on Scandal, mostly. I mean, there's little fires everywhere, but, like, it, give me some examples of TV performers who it's like they're one of the greats and you can rattle off. Right. Many, many TV. different roles. Right. I think it's Elizabeth Moss, maybe, but like we think of her more for movies. Right. Now. I think that's a big part of what makes it a different animal. And that's why I'm very, very fine with just talking about film performance in this. Like you, there are, there are different mediums. We're allowed to talk about one and not the other. I think sometimes the TV, TV, uh, for a better lack of a better term, TV Twitter, but like the sort of the television critical apparatus gets their back up about movies having a perceived superiority, which a I get it if you like TV that much and if you work in television and then you don't sort of like to see your medium sort of cast aside in that way. I do think there is something to the primacy of movies, so it doesn't bother me as much. I agree. But that's me. So, yeah. <laughs> Moving along, though, yes. uh, uh, um, we have another question related to this one. Yes. Uh, I mean, we kind of unpacked this performer already. Eliseo asks, how would you rank Denzel Washington's top five non-Oscar-nominated performances? So you got into this a little bit when you were talking about Denzel Washington as a movie star. And again, he is a great movie star, one of our best movie stars. And But when I was sort of going through his filmography, trying to pick out my favorite non-Oscar-nominated performances, what I noticed was... His Oscar nominations are for all the stuff where he steps outside of that, like, Denzel Washington leading man, uh, not bubble exactly, but like, there is, there is a Denzel Washington stock performance that he taps into a lot. This is, you know, Denzel Washington in The Siege, Denzel Washington in Inside Man, in Crimson Tide, in Man on Fire in Fallen, in Deja Vu, in, you know, any number of these movies, the one that's on the train, the one that's on, you know... You know Fallen. Right, again, Fallen. <laughs> the one that's with the devil. The one that's with the devil. And, like, nothing... Which is not to say that these are bad performances. Again, I think there is... It's an underrated skill to be able to be... To have that, like, screen persona that way. But, like, in many ways... All those characters are kind of the same guy. It's Denzel Washington. You know what I mean? Denzel Washington's here to foil a terrorist plot. Denzel Washington is here to solve a bank robbery. Denzel Washington is here to save the submarine. And it made it challenging to just be like, okay, but what are my favorite performances that maybe, you know, transcend that? And, like, he tends to get nominated when he transcends it for Fences, for Roman Israel, for uh, Flight, for Malcolm X, for Glory, you know, all these things. Uh, My favorites... I watched the I, this is all which says I watched the preacher's wife last night because I wanted to watch something that was different and that's not a really great movie I don't think unfortunately it's the rare uh, lighthearted comedy it is which is like fun it. to watch him do I wish I wish the movie was more about him the movie tends to be very much about Courtney B Vance as the stuck in his ways preacher of uh, of the title and even less so 
about Whitney Houston's character than you would think, which is fine because I don't think Whitney Houston is that great in that movie. I would have loved this movie to be almost all entirely about Jennifer Lewis, who is playing Whitney Houston's mother in this movie, even though she is only six years older than Whitney Houston, which <laughs> amazing. Um, but it was at least fun to watch Denzel do something different. I will also caveat this by saying I still have not seen Carl Franklin's Devil in a Blue Dress, which I know is a huge uh, blind spot for me, and I really, really will on my list uh, correct this. But like. Denzel and the Pelican Brief, so good. Denzel in Philadelphia, like, so good in a way that, like, you overlook what the challenge of that role is. Um, Denzel in... I think a lot of the type of characters that people complain about uh, gay narratives being about the straight character um, and the straight character getting off easy by the terms of the movie's judgment is not true about Philadelphia. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, I think Denzel's performance is really great at really earning the respect of the fellow characters, earning the respect of the audience yeah. um, in terms of his homophobia. Yeah. So wait, so what are yours? What are your favorite Denzel performances? Okay. It, my overarching point is like, Aside from thinking that Denzel Washington is the greatest living actor, he is also one of the few that it feels like Oscar has done right by them yes. in terms of nominating his best work. So, like, yes. I also did my top five of his performances, and all of them are Oscar-nominated or Oscar-won. Right. Right. Um, my top five for non-Oscar-nominated Denzel Washington performances. Number five, Inside Man. Inside Man is so fun. It is. Um, incredibly watchable. Yep. Um, I think it steps just outside of the Denzel Washington saves X Denzel Washington on a mode of transportation, uh, right. just enough to be like really interesting. Uh, number four is Manchurian Candidate, which is a movie I don't really like, but I think he is good in it. Mm-hmm. Um, number three is Devil in a Blue Dress. Number two is Philadelphia, and number one, our previous episode, Courage Under Fire. He's really good in Courage Under Fire. That's so a great good point. in Courage Under Fire. That's a great point. Very good. All right. Um, our next question comes from Josh M., who asks, uh, given that it only naturally comes up a little less often than the women, I am curious who are a few of your favorite male actors of all time and or of recent years. I oh. went with recent years. I mean, I could probably do all time easier than recent years because, <laughs> you know, male actors are mostly just in uh, franchise movies or uh, they're Eddie Redmayne. So, um, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, of all time, I, I mean, I, I talked about how much I love Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. I love Jack Lemmon so much. Yeah. This year, I really got into Ben Gazzara also because yeah. he's very handsome. <laughs> You and Elaine Stritch, what the commonality yep. is, it's uh-huh. very into that's that uh, the, the meme of like Chris File, Elaine Stritch, handshake emoji, um, uh, very into Ben <laughs> Horny for Ben <Ben-Gazar. laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I talked to, I think, I do think, I take your point about how the economy of Hollywood right now means that any halfway interesting male actor and a lot of the not interesting male actors all get sort of siphoned into franchise filmmaking. Thank you for saying it, Lucas Hedges. Yeah, that was a good point uh, in uh, in our interview with our our wonderful friend Matt Jacobs. Um, but 
I do think there's a good class of really interesting male actors right now. I I think about Oscar Isaac is incredibly uh, compelling to me. Adam Driver, I find fascinating everything he does. Andre Holland. Uh, I know you're less uh, bullish on him than I am, but I do think Timothy Chalamet, for all the hype, is an incredibly interesting young actor, and I love watching what he does. Uh, we talked about Donald Gleason and Ben Wishaw when we talked about about time with Katie Rich, and like I do think that they both have given some really good and interesting performances in a lot of different types of things. And, I mean, it's... Maybe a little trite to say, but like I'm still incredibly into everything Tom Hanks does and the yeah. way the kinds of roles he's been taking and performances he gives. And for as much his as Mr. Rogers, his Fred Rogers is not the Fred Rogers that you expect him to give, and yep. it is spectacular. He's doing some of the best work in his career in the last ten years, and I think that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's what I'll say about Oscar Isaac, or what I'll posit. Has Star Wars kind of killed the interesting side of his career? What interesting performances of his has he given since Star Wars? Well, considering since Star Wars is less than a year at this point, but... um, I mean, since Force Awakens, I'll say. Well, now I'm going to bring up Oscar Isaac. (laughs) I mean, I, it seems to me like you, you, you've, you've done your homework on this and you know that I'm not <laughs> going to be able to give it, you it, a good answer to this. But uh, That's just how I feel. I do love him. I hope that we can get another uh, Most Violent Year out of him. Um, don't you, you mean that literally for, and not like in terms of a Yes, I want, film, to, right? uh, I, I want him to uh, – I want him to – no, I don't want him inflicting violence. That's not good. I'm not going to wish that. I take your point. So his post-Star Wars movies are – and we'll – Set aside the X Men movie he did because we'll all choose to forget about that. Um, the Promise, which we doesn't all e- choose to forget all X Men movies. The Promise doesn't exist. Uh, Suburbicon is not a good movie, although he, I think, is probably the one of the more interesting parts of it. Annihilation is a great movie that he has a very specific role that keeps it's him in a box small. in that movie, but it's a great movie. Um, I saw Operation Finale, and I can't remember what his role in it is, which is probably not great. He has a small supporting role in At Eternity's Gate. That, you know, that movie was not about him. Oh, boy. The less said about life itself, the better. And he especially was tasked at playing, like, the most irritating character in life itself. He's the uh, one that's like, goes up to Olivia Wilde at a party, in the trailer at least, and yes. is like, I can see our whole lives Ugh. together, blah, 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 I blah, can't blah, wait to force you to watch that movie. I can't wait to force you to watch that movie. Um, Triple Frontier is what it is, and it's not for oh, me, boy. and maybe it's for uh, other Remember people. when Netflix was like, 80 million people watched <laughs> yeah, Triple do. Frontier. I'm I like, do. find me eight people that watch Triple Frontier. And, like, so upcoming is Dune, which I couldn't be more excited for. But, like, he plays Leto Atreides in this. And, like, that's a role that requires a lot of gravitas, but at least in the previous two adaptations of Dune, doesn't um, require a lot of uh, acting is the wrong word, but like it's not the most compelling role not, in, the, in, the, yeah. in the film by far. He's like, not even going to get to be like the cool character, right? That He's, like has the cool weapon, right? You know. So let's see, what does he have upcoming? He has a film. He has a Paul Schrader film he has the, called well, the, the Paul Schrader film. I am excited about. Yes, um, me too. Tiffany, where Hatch. he reunites with his. 
he reunites with his At Eternity's Gate co-star Willem Dafoe, which I think we've all been clamoring for. <laughs> I know. The uh, the uh, reunion of the century. Right. He does also have the remake of Scenes from a Marriage coming up. Which, which what it says, actress is attached now? I think it's the third one. It's not Jessica Chastain, is it? It still says Jessica Chastain on IMDb, but okay. we don't know. Maybe what television network is doing that? I think HBO Max, but I could be really wrong. Yes, it is HBO. Okay. okay. So, yes, that's worth getting excited about. The Schrader is worth getting excited about. Um, there's another television series that he's attached to. Oh, it's a Marvel series. It's a... Uh, it's uh, Moon Knight. I don't know what that is. Uh-huh. But uh, good for uh, everybody involved in Moon Knight. Um, I'm sure that was part of the big Disney investor call that me not being a Disney investor did not pay attention to. Moon Knight, I'm watching P-Valley and obsessed with it right now. Moon Knight would be Autumn Knight's uh, stripper sister. He's also attached to a James Gray movie, which again... People love James Gray more than I do, but like I still think that's really interesting. It's him. Right now, the cast list as, a, as on IMDb is Oscar Isaac, Robert De Niro, Donald Sutherland, Kate Blanchett, and Anne Hathaway. I'm absolutely interested in that. <laughs> so, yeah, I think there's some interesting stuff ahead for Oscar Isaac. I will say you probably have a little bit of a point with your snarky little has Star Wars ruined Oscar Isaac thing, but I have faith. I, I mean, that... I don't, I'm, I'm, maybe it was blunt. I didn't mean to be snarky. I don't, here's the, th- here's what I will say about that. John Boyega is finally emerging from it. He's incredible in Red, White, and Blue, the small X film that he stars in. And Donald Gleason, like, has escaped the Star Wars thing too. You're right to bring him up. He's very interesting. But, like, he had the benefit of playing a villain. Well, and, and a not, small, like, and a small the role. main villain. Yeah. And I guess Adam Driver, you're right about Adam Driver. I worry because like Adam Driver's next movie is going to be a Ridley Scott epic. <laughs> yeah. I'm just worried we're going to lose Adam Driver too. I don't think you lose actors to ri- to making one Ridley Scott movie though. Like, it, like it, oh, I'm being I'm being gauche here, but like I I'm concerned that he is because he's going to be like the number one choice for like all movies. They're going to throw all of these big boring movies at him. I have a little bit I think I think your general point is correct in that like actors on the way up are more interesting than once they've made it. Whereas actresses sometimes are able to stay interesting because they have to seek out the interesting roles because there aren't as many good ones. So like that's you know you take the good you take the bad with that kind of thing. But my hope is that with people like Adam Driver and Oscar Isaac that they still have an eye towards interesting directors. We see, obviously, Oscar Isaac wanting to work with James Gray and Paul Schrader is evidence of that. I'm hoping that Adam Driver retains... Because, like, he was in, a, like, a lot of really interesting types of movies on his way up. And, like, hopefully... Uh, and he's a theater guy. You know what I mean? He's idiosyncratic. I'm hoping sure, that that... Sure, you sure. Know, didn't he play, like, Hamlet Barefoot or something? God, I would have paid to see that. <laughs> Uh, Adam Driver's feet? Hamlet, amazing. Um, oh, not Adam Driver. Oscar Isaac did Hamlet. Oh, oh, yes. You're right. You're right. You're right. God, I forgot about that. God, remember theater? Okay. Uh, okay. So, uh, 
keeping in the spirit of us getting a lot of questions about male actors this time because we famously only appreciate women. Um, <laughs> considering how hit or miss, mostly miss, this category is for you guys, what is your favorite Best Supporting Actor lineup post-2000 and how does it compare to uh, your personal five that year? That question was from Ty. Once again, okay, I just so, like totally blow past the second part of questions. I'm fully prepared uh, <laughs> for the first part of this, and now I'm scrambling to bring up my own list. All right, so you 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 lead the way. I, I'll 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 take the lead then. Um, so I guess my favorite would be 07, the Javier Bardem year, which is also Philip Seymour Hoffman for Charlie Wilson's War, Hal Holbrook for uh In the Wild, which is a movie I don't like, but he is good in it, and uh, Tom Wilkinson for Michael Clayton. Who am I missing? Uh, uh, Casey Affleck. Uh, yes, Casey Affleck in uh, Assassination of Jesse James, which is a performance I really liked at the time. And then when I rewatch it now, it feels really one note on top of being the lead, lead which is a yeah. conversation I hate. Um, but yeah, that I think is a pretty interesting slash solid lineup compared to a lot of other years, which is just like look at this old man with punchlines. I'm not talking about any Alan Arkin nomination in particular. Um, but yeah, I guess my personal lineup would be, my carryovers would be Javier Bardem and Tom Wilkinson. Uh, Tom Wilkinson must always contractually carry baguettes from now on. I'm <laughs> this rule. He's so um, good in that movie. My other nominees would be Phil Bosco for The Savages. You love the savages. I do love that movie. Buffalo uh, Excellence, the savages. <laughs> um, and then uh, from our previous episode, Robert Downey Jr. in Zodiac, and my winner, Mark Ruffalo for Zodiac. Yeah, we've definitely talked about this this uh, category before because I I also have Robert Downey Jr. and Mark Ruffalo in my lineup, along with Bardem and Tom Wilkinson. And my fifth, instead of Philip Bosco, is the uh, delightfully extra Ben Foster in 310 to Yuma that year. Um, yeah, 2007 is my number one as well, as I went through everything. I think it is the most balanced in terms of I don't – like everybody in it I think is at least very good. I do like Into the Wild as a movie. I think the Hal Holbrook movie nomination is a little bit of a um, – we like you old person <laughs> nomination, yes. which is fine. He had never been nominated, if I'm correct. I think there are more interesting performances in that film. I think Catherine Keener uh, is really interesting. I think um, both Kristen Stewart and Jenna Malone are really good in that movie. But like everything else besides Emile Hirsch's really small roles. So uh, whatever. I think other years that I looked to that were good. Um, I think the 2010 lineup is actually really good. Christian Bale in... The Fighter, Ruffalo and The Kids Are All Right, John Hawks in Winter's Bone, Jeffrey Rush, who I think is actually very good in The King's Speech, although he is probably a co-lead, and uh, Jeremy Renner in The Town, which is a weird nomination that I really kind so, of appreciate. That's definitely um, – well, The Town was that almost is the, the Best Picture nominee. Yeah. It, that was definitely like Afterglow of the Hurt Locker. Yeah. But it's also, but lo- looking at it now, it is like nominating Ben Foster for 310 to Yuma. It's just like, oh, twitchy secondary villain, I am in. Um, <laughs> uh, tw- 2000s lineup, which we talked about recently on the Vanity Fair podcast, I think is very strong. Benicio del Toro winning for traffic. Willem Dafoe in Shadow of the Vampire is so weird and good. Bridges in The Contender, I think is a hoot. 
Um, Albert Finney and Aaron Brockovich, I love, and I was surprised at how much I loved Joaquin Phoenix going back into Gladiator. And I did not like Joaquin Phoenix in Gladiator. Right. And then, I do love that Bridges performance, though. He threatens people with, like, sandwiches. It's great. <laughs> uh, and then one that I think would be a big contender, were it not for one performance, is actually the 2018 lineup, where Mahershala wins his second for Green Book in a performance I do think is really great. Uh, Sam Elliott in A Star is Born, who I love. Richard E. Grant for Can You Ever Forgive Me, who I love. Mm-hmm. Adam Driver's great in Black Klansman. And then the only one I really don't like is Sam Rockwell as George W. Bush in Vice. But otherwise, I also thought of lineup. the Jared Leto year. Um, with the exception of Jared Leto winning. That's Jonah Hill, though, right? For Wolf of Wall Street? I can get behind the Jonah Hill Wolf of Wall Ugh. Street nomination in a way that I can't get behind the Moneyball nomination. Oh, I'm the absolute opposite. I think he's really good in Moneyball. I could not stand him in Wolf of Wall Street. And I know, like, I mean, that's I don't the want point. to be the whatever. dude that's like, well, that's partly the point, but I mean, maybe it's partly the point. Uh, that whole movie is part the, that that is that's the point the movie in a way where i'm just like making the jerk off motion just like okay go away from me wolf of wall street <laughs> you're not supposed to like him fuck you martin scorsese is having a ball with that character and you cannot tell me he's not and i mean the jordan belfort character we'll anyway. uh we'll wrap up uh, our actor discourse with uh the most important question that we <laughs> i think we were asked um asked by jess um uh, she says, I have come to provoke and will simply ask concerning Caleb Landry. She says, love of her life, Jones. Thoughts? She sensed a difference of opinion between the two of us on this matter. Oh, have you? I believe an in-depth discussion is necessary to get to the bottom of this. Do you think he have, he'll ever be Oscar nominated? Does he shower? It's a limitless topic, honestly worthy of a full-length ep. Jess... You are the new agitator on this podcast. <laughs> um, my uh, eye was twitching the whole time reading that question. That's appropriate. Caleb That's very Landry appropriate. Yeah. It is very appropriate. I You're was a method, method as uh, Caleb Landry Jones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that you love him. I do not begrudge your love of him. I think he is a movie destroyer and derailer. I think he is active problem for Get Out. I think he shows up in movies and exists in his own movie. Um, I yeah, like I really actors like who... Him. I, I, okay, I will say this. I like actors who show up and exist in, in their own movie. that's shitty to the movie. I think he's even a problem for the Florida Project, where he's, like, still no. doing nothing. No, but like, no. He's great in the Florida Project. He's great. Um, I, you and Katie Rich both bring up the same point about Get Out. I disagree but i i i see your point i see you know what you're saying and that he is so obviously a problem once he shows up in that movie that like part of its greatness is all of its pieces working together he so clearly doesn't for the rest of that movie that i'm like i i i'll give you that one i i will i will concede that one even though i do enjoy him in pretty much everything um i like actors who seem like they're 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 off in their own movie i don't think that's the case in the florida project i think he actually fits in quite seamlessly in that and his one scene in that movie is actually really effective um 
I loved, I really loved him in X-Men First Class. I know that's not much of a thing of just like, that's not an acting (laughs) showcase or whatever, but like, I really uh, was fond of him in that. I think he's really interesting in Three Billboards, and I I enjoy the energy he's putting out. I word out of his mouth in that movie. No, I really like him. Um, I don't remember him in The Dead Don't Die, but I don't remember very much about The Dead Don't Die, a film I was very disappointed by. Um... Yeah, he's good in stuff like uh, uh, Byzantium, which is the Neil Jordan vampire movie that nobody's ever seen that I always talk about. love when you bring up Byzantium. One of my faves. Thank you for your question, Jess. We're going to move on to actresses. Michael asks us, if Annette Bening and Amy Adams had both been nominated for Best Actress in 2016, who do we think would have won? Here's the thing. The Amy Adams uh, miss for Arrival gets talked about so much as like, I, we, everybody was so late to the party. I feel like I was having this conversation and people looked at me sideways when I said it at the time that like Arrival would have been perfect for her Oscar. And like, that was a best picture nominee. You can absolutely see how she could have won. I really don't think there's a scenario where Emma Stone loses that Oscar, especially after Isabelle Huppert won the Globe. I agree. with Regardless of who you remove from the category, because the nominees were Emma Stone, Isabelle Huppert, Natalie Portman for Jackie, Meryl Streep for Florence Foster Jenkins, and Ruth Naga for Loving. So here's the interesting thing about that, is I think... If you asked the average man on the street, and when I say man on the street, I mean homosexual on Twitter, they would tell you that the two that would uh, that would most likely lop off would be Streep and Ruth Nega. But if you remember at the Streep time, had that whole um, speech about Trump at speak, the Globes, right. which like absolutely cemented her nomination. This is the like thing. the week before Oscar voting started. Yes. I think this is the thing is I think once that happened and already I think I was already predicting Streep as a contender and like she was she was pretty close to already getting that nomination anyway and then that speech happened and I think it shot her up. If you remember at the time, we all got really nervous about Natalie Portman towards the end right there that she was mm-hmm. going to maybe get a surprise nomination because Jackie was such an odd bird and was so, you know, it was a very divisive movie. Divisive movie kind of off-putting whatever and then the Oscars ended up liking that movie even better than I thought they would because they also nominated the score, right? Which which was In also costumes. like super device, divisive. Right. So but I do think that if you look at the nomination totals, Streep is maybe third. And um, but anyway, let's assume that it is Streep and Ruth Nega who are left off, or perhaps Natalie and Ruth Nega are 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 lopped off. Even and, if you assume Annette Benning is in, I don't think she's anywhere close to no. winning that well, year, unfortunately. I mean, she's my winner, but She's my winner as well that year. I think I think Annette Benning in 20th Century Women is one of her great performances and one of my favorite performances. But one of the great performances of this century. The challenge in this kind of a question is because like we're st- if you put in Annette Benning and Amy Adams, we're still dealing with an environment that didn't like them enough to put them in for real, right? So it's tough mm-hmm. to like imagine, you know, a world where people appreciated those performances better. But what I think you're asking is once that lineup becomes set, we've talked about before about how certain things alter the alchemy of a category when it comes into Oscar voting. And I say this when I think about something like the 2012 supporting actor race, which 
was the one with all five previous winners, right? And we talk about how Mm -hmm. if Matthew McConaughey had been nominated for Magic Mike, or if Leonardo DiCaprio had been nominated for Django Unchained, uh, Leo came close. Leo was a Globe nominee. Um, I think it alters Mm -hmm. the chemistry of that contest because it enters, it puts in somebody with a factor that changes things, which is that, oh, Mm -hmm. this person hasn't won, everybody else has, maybe we'll go for this person. I don't think, I think the best case scenario when you're talking about Annette Benning and Amy Adams is what you're hoping is that with those two in the category, then all of a sudden it gets people thinking Amy's been nominated X number of times. This is Annette's fourth nomination. Uh, fifth nomination? It would have been her fifth nomination, right? Yes. Yes. Grifters, uh, uh, being Julia. I don't American know if that Beauty. was enough to have shifted Annette right. Benning, though, because that was a movie right. that, like, not enough people were talking right. about. Amy Adams, I think, without a Globe win, like to solidify like how passionate people were for the performance at the time. I mean, if she's in there, she's maybe enough to be solidly second place because I think second place is very far behind Emma Stone. Yeah, but like I don't think it would be enough to be an active challenger to her that year. I mean, Emma Stone was in what was the best picture frontrunner for the entire season. Right. Um, right. Which negates the advantage that Amy might have had by being in a best picture nominee. Right. And also, we've seen the scenario where Amy Adams has gotten a nomination for a best picture nominee more recently than Arrival, which is when she was nominated for Vice. And I know we all, you know, again, don't like Vice, but it's still a, no- a nomination for a Best Picture nominee, and like that didn't Best cause... Picture nominee when she was nominated for American Hustle. <laughs> I think the when will Amy Adams win an Oscar thing is a much bigger deal online than it is among Academy voters. I think at some point the the pendulum will swing on that, and it will become a major uh, concern for Oscar voters in the like Leo DiCaprio vein of things. But like again. It didn't happen to Leo until The Revenant. Like, we talked about it a little bit with the Wolf of Wall Street nomination, but there wasn't a huge groundswell for, like, we've got to get Leo his Oscar now. Like, sometimes. I, mean, I feel like Amy Adams, it's probably also a thing that there's confidence in the Academy that she'll win eventually. Right. Right. So there's no, there's the urgency isn't there. And I think, again, yeah. a lot of times this is a thing that, this is a narrative that gets whipped up by publicity departments right where like the mm-hmm. the leo winning the oscar narrative was something that was part of the revenants publicity from like day one and so at some point probably that will happen for amy adams sometimes that happens like early on where everybody's like big eyes it's going to be big eyes you guys this is the time Ooh. and we've seen it a little Maybe bit this year with, big eyes with the hillbilly elegy but then the movies come out and everybody's like mm, so maybe the next one <laughs> and yeah it'll you know it'll happen when it happens for amy adams but I, I i agree with you i think emma stone wins that oscar no matter what yeah all right so our next question comes from Corey, who asks uh you guys often talk about oscar speeches where you can tell that they're a genuinely good person i know you often use julianne moore's speech as an example of this what are some other speeches that have the same energy i always think about olivia coleman's speech and how it makes her seem like an absolute delight thank you 
Corey for that question. It took me all of three hours to be off book on Olivia Coleman's Oscar speech. <laughs> I agree with you on that point, Corey. Um, I mean, I think of, and not just because I just watched uh, Jane Fonda and Five Acts, but Jane Fonda, all three of her Oscar speeches, yes, I'm including when she accepted on behalf of her father. <laughs> sure. Um, and, like, her first speech is very limited in what, what's the actual quote where, like... There's, there's a lot to, to say, say, and I'm not going to say any of them tonight. I just tonight, want to say thank you very much. Like, you can just tell that yeah. she's an actively humble... The height um, of Hanoi Jane. Person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, brilliant. I think you're Wonderful. right. You can tell that she is a, a very good soul and a very uh, gracious person. I, I'm desperate for Jane Fonda to get another oscar now at this stage of her life because oh my god i i can't imagine the tenor of speech she would make now like it's truly uh something to behold something to think about for sure so wait so what were your picks for uh was jane your only pick or did you have uh, multiples um i mean there's a bunch of people that i think of i mean it helps when there's multiple speeches i guess because i also thought of mahershala yeah um who are some of yours uh, I mean, most of these are going to be actresses, so I do want to throw in uh, a bone to say uh, Michael Caine's speech when he won for the Cider House Rules was so gracious and kind of lovely in the way he talked about the other nominees that year. Mm-hmm. And it really Didn't made he me basically sort of like, say like Haley Joel Osment deserves an Oscar. Well, he sort of said that about everybody. Was he? He said, you know, Tom, you know, you were so wonderful in this movie to Tom Cruise, uh, and he said, thank God you didn't win because your quote would have gone way down. I know what supporting actors make like it's a, it's you know it's self effacing, <laughs> but it's also like but like so sweet and so kind to Haley Joel Osment and like so you know complimentary to Michael Clark Duncan and uh, Jude Law and um. It's just really lovely. But my faves in terms of when I watch the speech, I think Julianne Moore is a great answer to that. When I watch Julianne Moore's speech, I'm just like, you're such a lovely human being and I think you're the best. (laughs) And I think that when I watch the Sandra Bullock speech, I think Sandra Bullock is so um, naturally gracious in that way. And like half of that speech is me feeling terrible for her because of her rotten husband, who at that time she didn't know was a rotten husband. And it's so sad to me that that, you know, great moment in her life is so inextricably tied up with him because she, you know, makes such a big deal of him during that speech. But, um, I think that's wonderful. I think the Diablo Cody speech when she won for Juno, uh, just made her seem like a very, uh, like cool but like not straining i know the lot of the thing about juno and diablo cody was like was just like she seemed like a tryhard at the time but that oscar speech she just seemed like you know you know a very that oscar speech tells me that she really did not expect to win and she's just like genuinely you know kind of thrilled at the the position she found herself in and i love that and then the other speech i'm gonna throw in there is share for moonstruck when she won for moonstruck because the thing about share is you always expect that she's going to be this alien goddess, like, absolutely rarefied air, untouchable. She's Cher. She's fucking Cher. She's immortal. She's the greatest. And you then also when, expect her to be an asshole, and she's not. But Also that. But, like, but whenever you hear her interviewed, or she gives a speech, or whatever, it's just like, oh, like, for as much as 
she sounds bananas on Twitter. Like, whenever I hear her actually speak, I'm just like, oh, I kind of want to have a conversation with you. I want to have a three-hour interview with you where I get to talk about whatever I want. And um, she just seems very nice. I don't know. It's weird to think of, like, Cher as nice. <laughs> but, like, she does. She seems that way. Um, I don't know. And that speech always makes me think, like, just the way she talks about never thinking that she would have this career and talking about Meryl and talking about, you know, her mom. And I don't know. I love Cher. I love Cher. We do love Cher. Next question comes from Erin. She asks, considering the far-reaching success of Roma and Parasite in the last two award seasons, I'm curious what your hopes are for international feature given its recent rebranding. I'm also curious if you're excited for any non-U.S. films being released this year. We get a lot of questions during the mailbag or we get a handful of questions each time if we're ever going to do a non-English language feature. And the tricky thing with international feature in relation to Oscar buzz is like it functions under, I don't want to say, well, I mean like, yes, literally different rules, but like it's a very different thing in the process of getting those, uh, that category, the final nominees, right? There's the whole like bake off lists where yes, like now you have more and more countries than ever every year submitting. Right. And then it goes down to like 15 and then it goes down to 10 and then it's the final nominees. And like, there's always one every year, right. That we talk about that, like gets screwed by being left off of one of those finalist lists until the final nominations. Right. Right. Um, and it's also just like the nominating committees change every year. Right. They um it, like sometimes they just go fall back on like the corniest taste, so like things that are a little bit more avant-garde or uh difficult right don't make the cut because they just kind of fall back to populist taste. That's like the type of thing that happened with burning. Um right. So but but that, you look like, at something like Burning or like the most famous recent example in terms of a non-nomination that got people up in arms, which was something like four months, three weeks, and two days. But like mm-hmm. it would seem perverse to do a this had Oscar buzz entry on four months, three weeks, and two days, right? Because it's just like, Well, yes. we can't because it's a not Oh, no, oh, I, I know what movie you Sorry, I was confusing it with uh, Marion Cotillard, Two Days, One Night. Right. No. Uh, I'm um, talking about the the Romanian. Imagine those uh, movies in a mashup together. Exactly, um, fresh and sandwich. But I think when you talk about foreign language films that end up getting major nominations, like Parasite and like Roma, mm-hmm. um, them getting there by the time they were nominated, they were not surprised. But like, if you asked people, you know, very far ahead of time, if Parasite was going to be nominated for Oscars, people would be like, "That's a long shot," and they are. They're all sort of by definition mm-hmm. long shots because they are from outside of the traditional Hollywood awards economy. And so it's hard to look at something that doesn't make it and just be like, well, you tried it because it's just like, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, they're coming from such a deficit that I think when we talk about movies that we talk about on this podcast, there's some expectation that like they're in this sort of pocket for this thing. And I think most mm-hmm. uh, international a- features are not in that pocket. There's some famous examples, too, where it's like it's not the movie that's selected by the country. 
Um, like Olmodovar's had that happen to him several times. It's yeah. part of the reason why Talk to Her won original screenplay and got that Best Director nomination. Probably would have been a Best Picture nominee if that was 10 that year. Um, Almodovar is an interesting case, though, because he is the rare foreign language director who does carry with him some sense of Oscar expectation because of his success mm-hmm. at the Oscars over the years. So I feel like we could maybe do something like Broken Embraces. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I like, mean, that would Penelope qualify. Cruz, too. Yeah. So we'll maybe see. we will. As far as this year, like, this is another one where I feel like the ecosystem during the pandemic has hurt smaller movies or, like, movies that are at least smaller in terms of Oscar conversation. Yeah. There's some good stuff out there. Um, Night of the Kings, the Ivory Coast's submission is really good. Another Round is really good, and I think that's probably going to be... Our winner, though, like, as we just mentioned, the way that, like, the bake-offs always shake You never know. Down. You really never you know. You never know. Yep. It's um, true. But, yeah. I think that that's the... Yeah, I think that's... that's to the, my mind, the most likely winner at this point. Yeah. All right. Joel asks us, what's your most memorable below-the-line win from Oscar night, and why? I've talked about this on mic before, but I don't care, because... I love talking about it. Aiko Ishioka winning costumes for Bram Stoker's Dracula. Fucking rules. Yeah. That's amazing. I wish that they would be that weird more often. It's weird, but like, it's a weird pick because it's a weird movie, but it's also so incredibly opulent. You could make the case that it's like, sure, it's an oddball pick, but yeah. it's also most costumes. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's, a phenomenal achievement, and and we love it. I sort of went with uh, Oscar moments from, you know, the ceremony, my favorite from below-the-line categories. I think, A, anytime someone gay wins and kisses their boyfriend slash husband or thanks them from the stage is fun. Uh, we don't get it often enough, but it does happen. Um, and then two moments that are like indelible in my mind from Oscar ceremonies. One of which is we talked about this when we were on the screen drafts podcast, when we drafted drag movies, uh, Lizzie Gardner winning best costumes for the adventures of Priscilla queen of the desert. When she showed up with her dress made from American express gold cards, which I will never forget. I was uh, totally wonderful. And obviously, you know, the unexpectedness of a, you know, small little Australian drag movie, uh, when, an Oscar was, you know, elated, uh, you know, many people who really loved that movie. And then the other one I will always remember is in 2013, when 20 Feet from Stardom won Best Documentary, I was over the moon for that movie anyway. So I was so happy that that uh, one, one of my favorite sort of movie watching experiences of all time was just sort of watching that movie and sort of being, you know, filled up with joy watching these women sing. But then to see Darlene Love take the stage and acapella sing uh, his eyes on the sparrow as like bill murray among others are freaking out in the audience is uh was phenomenal and i really loved that that's a spectacular pick yeah robin asks us inspired by the wonderful behind the scenes video for kuba gooding jr's acceptance speech what other oscar moments would you want to see the production booth feed i mean i mean this is the low-hanging fruit but i would like to see the best picture Moonlight yep. La La Land Snafu yep. from the production booth feed. Yep. I mean, not for the schadenfreude of like watching someone get fired in real time, 
but like <laughs> when you read when like you read the immediate fallout and they were like interviewing production people from the Oscars like yeah. truly nobody knew what was going on in the entire theater yes and like i think that would give a sense of scope well perceiving and my favorite thing about that Cuba Gooding Jr video when you watch the director you know, calling out shots is finding reaction shots that he wanted to cut to where in that one, he's like cut to Muhammad Ali, cut to Tom Cruise, whatever. And like the decisions of who to cut to in the audience during the moonlight La La Land thing would have been amazing. <laughs> um, cut to the card, cut right. to the card, cut, cut to Travante Rhodes, uh, grasping his chest, like all this stuff. I have two other contenders. Taraji P. Henson with her cell phone. Yes. Yes, absolutely. All of that stuff. Like, just absolutely amazing. Um, I think that's the right answer. My two sort of semifinalists for this. The 2010 Melissa Leo speech, where uh, she becomes a runaway train of cursing and potential further cursing. That, like, I would have liked to have seen the chaos in the booth surrounding that one. Um, And then also, one thing uh, that is sort of less lighthearted, but do you remember in 1998 when Elia Kazan won the honorary Oscar and there was the huge controversy over whether they should because he had named names during the Blacklist era and all this stuff? And uh, Amy Madigan and Ed Harris, I believe, are the ones that are, like, scowling. It's Amy Madigan and Ed Harris. Well, so, like, in the lead-up to this whole thing, there was this genuine sort of dialogue about, like, A, should this happen and then it was happening and then b it was how should the audience react and there was definitely there was like a thing where like people in hollywood were like we should all sit on our hands we should all refuse to applaud and that will be our statement against you know what this person did and like whether that was justified whatever it's a very complicated issue he was a very old man by this point so it did seem kind of mean to be that mean to an old man but like these were uh you know important issues with American history and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ones who were on screen as as uh, overtly not applauding were Amy Madigan and Ed Harris. Ed Harris was nominated for The Truman Show that year. And then uh, Nick Nolte, who was nominated for Affliction. And at the time, he was dating Vicki Lewis of News Radio, if you remember. So the two oh, of wow. them also sat there and like refused to applaud. And... I again just the call the finding reaction shots and calling them out and like f- seeing who the production booth decided to cut <laughs> to, to out as standing or not right. standing um, would have been a really interesting choice. Yeah, my other choice would probably be again another more basic Oscar answer of the naked guy in the seventies <laughs> because when you watch it, the camera barely cuts away. Right. So you wonder, did they just not react in time? Right. Did they... I'm speaking, of course, about when David Niven was on the stage and a man ran out from the Streaks. wings completely yeah. stark naked across the stage and through the theater. Yes. Um. But yeah, like, were they not paying attention? Was it just the 70s and, like... You know, TV production booths were chiller. Probably didn't have a delay like you would have now. Um, So maybe that was part of it as well. I'm just like, I should read up on that. I'm sure there's a great article that's been written about that or something. Because, like, how does that person get that 
far in the process of like how does he get backstage like at what point is he like wearing a robe backstage and everybody's like we don't know who this guy is in the robe like how long was he naked backstage before he like runs across how did he get there was he a stagehand that went right right exactly i'm sure like somebody shoot us a link to something about this story because i would love to read see someone's personal it feels like something that would have been part of like the annual ew oscar issue where they would talk about like old oscar ceremonies the naked man um anyway anyway, anyway that's a great that's a great choice here okay next kevin question. asks yes. uh what's the oscar win over the last 30 years that has the worst consequences for following wins this is a very fascinating question and obviously right up my alley because i have weirdly made an odd little cottage <laughs> industry around this we kind do of have thing a, and we have more questions of the uh of the domino effect uh coming so. yeah um I don't want to just jump to, like, the lead acting races, <laughs> which is something we talk about a lot. But, like, my gut instinct is Jodie Foster winning for The Accused. That's my very top one as well. Because... It would have saved okay, us so, a lot of heartache subsequently when it comes to Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Because I, I've done... I'm doing a catch-up to some blind spots. Uh-huh. Caught up to Blue Sky, right? A movie that I don't think existed even when it won an Oscar. I hear where you're going with this, and I am already on board. Yes, it is one of the most atrocious acting wins I've ever seen. She's <laughs> much respect a lot. to Jessica Lange. She's a and lot. Part of the reason why she won is because when she did win her first one, it was for Tootsie. Which was really because they couldn't also give her the Oscar for Francis because she was nominated against Meryl Streep for Sophie's Choice. Exactly. Exactly. That's... And like there was some residual like Orion holdover because Orion had had that movie and didn't. They went. Then under, they so died. The movie, yeah. The movie literally sat on a shelf for two years yep. for good reason. Yes. Um. And, like, the other major contender that year was Jodie Foster Fresnel, who... Would have won uh, if she was already not a two-time winner. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Um... Even though Nell after. is a bananas movie too, that like I mean, any way you any way you slice it, 1994 Best Actress would have been a weird winner. Whether it's Jodie Foster for Nell or Winona Ryder for Little Women or Susan Sarandon for The Client, like honestly, give it to Susan even because like you could have had. There's other good people she's nominated against in um, Dead Man Walking. Well, okay, so let's follow this train a little bit. If Jodie, if if um, if Susan Sarandon wins in 94 for The Client, which the drumbeat for Susan to finally win one was loud then. The Client was seen as a little bit of a reach, but you could have imagined a scenario where the emotional appeal for Susan Sarandon needs to win an Oscar, which had been mostly, tying in Jodie Foster again, mostly because Jodie beat her the Thelma and Louise year. Because mm-hmm. when Susan lost for Thelma and Louise, that's when this became this really loud call for just like, well, justice for Susan. And she lost for Lorenzo's Oil the next year. So anyway, Susan, let's say Susan wins for the client in 94. In 95, she probably is still nominated for Dead Man Walking, but probably doesn't win it two years in a row. So does it go to Elizabeth Shue for leaving Las Vegas? Does it go to Merrill for the Bridges of Madison County? Or does it go to Golden Globe winner Sharon Stone for Casino? I think it... Okay, if if Casino was nominated anywhere else, I think it could have gone to Sharon Stone. Uh-huh. I don't know 
if they were going to give Meryl a third Oscar at Yet. that point. Right. But right. that's one of her best performances. I agree. I think they probably give it to Elizabeth Shue. His and hers Oscars it, for leaving In Las the context Vegas. of that year. Yeah. yeah. I think you're right. And the other thing I think, back to the very beginning of it, and I hope this doesn't derail you because it's a whole other thing. <laughs> if you don't give it to Jodie Foster for The Accused, you can give it to Glenn Close for Dangerous Liaisons, yep. which, like, that's not me shitting on her because, like, that is the performance her Oscar should have been. Yeah. And we can spare ourselves a whole lot of heartache. We spare ourselves the knobs of it all. We spare ourselves the wife. We spare ourselves... um, Hillbilly elegy. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. spare ourselves the smellogy. The other one, I think that's right. This was the number one uh, choice on mine. The thing about Jodie Foster winning in 1988 is we didn't know the future. We didn't know that Jodie Foster had the Silence of the Lambs coming up just a few years later. Mm -hmm. So, like, at that point, she was this, you know, former nominee for Taxi Driver. She had grown up in Hollywood. And, you know, she had made good with this, you know, film. She was, you know, an adult actress now and giving this powerful performance. And... It makes sense at the moment that they would have given it to her. But yeah, if it would have gone to Glenn Close instead, who I think was probably second place that year for Dangerous Liaisons. uh, Possibly, but the other question is, like, some of the weirdness of that Oscar year is Sigourney Weaver splitting her own vote. Yeah, well, again, that was the famous famous three-way tie at the Golden Globes, where it was Jodie Uh Foster and then Sigourney Weaver for Gorillas in the Mist, and also a non-present Shirley MacLaine for Madame Susatska, which is... My favorite <laughs> trivia tidbit of all time. Um, but the other year I had here, which I always talk about, is 1974 Best Actor, where Art Carney for Harry and Tonto beats out um, Al Pacino for The Godfather Part Two, and uh, Jack Nicholson for Chinatown, and like two other, uh, Gene Hackman, I think, for The Conversation, and like a murderer's row. Of, uh, of nominees in 1974. And it ends up going to, you know, you know, nice old man Art Carney with a cap. And that was sort of a little notorious at the time. But you look at that. And of course, the dominoes that fall from that is then Pacino becomes the we've never given it to Pacino. And then he wins for Scent of a Woman, beating out Denzel Washington, who should have won for Malcolm, for Malcolm X. X. And then, you know, what happens from there does Denzel Washington still win for Training Day if he already has two Oscars? Probably not. But then 2001 is a is such a great question mark for me because Russell Crowe had won the year before. Does Russell Crowe win two in a row? I kind of think he does, which is weird. But anyway, um, no, I think your I think your Jodie Foster the accused answer is the correct one. Sorry if you wanted a below the line question. This is uh, this is this is who we are. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. All right. So the next we're question. We're not a stranger to the dark. <laughs> oh my god! Shut um, up. All right. Next one. What if Renee Zellweger won Best Actress for Chicago? This is from Oliver. I like that this question feels like Oliver listened to our answer for the previous question and is just like, well, what about this? Smart guys. <laughs> uh, so I think this is a fascinating question, but mostly what it makes me think of is if Renee Zellweger had won for Chicago, yes, you then wonder what happens the next year with Cold Mountain. But my thing is... Who I mean, wins? I think the the next year is easily answered. Show Ragdashloo wins. Probably. Like, period. Probably. But my most intriguing thing is 
who would have won in 2019. Mostly what I'm asking you is, who do we think was second place last year? Oh. Because that one kind of stopped me in my tracks. Again, I haven't really thought about it yet because Renee was such a, you know, shoe-in. There there was no other... There wasn't. Here's the thing. The whole season... Right. ...would shift. Right. Because, like, nobody was ever really talking about anything. Right. Honestly, what I think happens and how the season changes is that it's probably Scarlett Johansson. Oh, that's fascinating. See, I think I think your greater point is absolutely on the button, which is the whole Oscar race for Best Actress has to, like, fundamentally change. And we talk about narratives a lot, but this is what we mean when we talk about that, which is Renee Zellweger, from a pretty early stage by the fall, was like, oh, it's going to be Renee this year. And so everybody else was sort of in a race for a nomination. And... Because of well, the, and there was no like front runner challenger at any point. None never, of these performances never, really got never. to a certain level. And like you could argue that at a certain point it could be Sersha because of all the nominations that she has. I but think I yes I see. Uh, I think we like critics and the internet likes that movie more than the Academy ultimately did. But like they respect the movie, but they didn't. You know. But if that field is wide open for a Sersha win, maybe that movie gets received a little bit differently. Maybe then that movie right. becomes the Saoirse Ronan Oscar movie. And then that narrative shifts a little bit. We already saw that they liked Little Women enough to give it a bunch of nominations as well as a win for costumes. So I don't think it would have taken a lot for the Oscar voters to look at that movie just a little bit differently and a little bit more robustly as a as a potential Best Actress win. So that's one possibility. Mm-hmm. Another possibility, which <laughs> would have... Uh, been the inverse reaction on the internet, which would have been Charlize Theron for Bombshell, which I do feel like there was a potential for there to be a very strong narrative. We know that the Oscars love imitation, obviously, with, you know, um, Renee playing Judy Garland uh, that year was, you know, but one example of many. Um, and while I do think she there would have well been the whole season. Charlize for Bombshell? Yeah, Yeah. she did. She was same with Cynthia Erivo, but like... I think Charlize was probably second place in voting, is my guess. Really? I do. Okay. I think Marriage Story... Scarlett Johansson's pulling her own votes. Cynthia Erivo's pulling her own votes. I think Scarlett might have been second for supporting. Maybe. Maybe. But anyway, I think... No, I think Florence Pugh was probably second. Yeah, you're probably right. I think Marriage Story had receded enough. And again, if it's a different year, then the narrative is different. I think a Cynthia Erivo win is a strong possibility, though. I think that's that's possible. Um, The thing is, like, we just talked about this when Emma Stone won. Second place was probably so far behind that... Yeah. You know, second Could have been anybody. Yeah could have been in literally any order yes what i also think if she wins for chicago the big question otherwise is what happens to nicole kidman i do think she wins for cold probably mountain. <laughs> she doesn't win for cold mountain i do think she probably gets nominated for cold mountain yeah or like i mean her later nominations would have maybe she does end up getting nominated if she doesn't win by then for the paper boy or maybe she wins for lion yeesh um i think i think nicole kidman 
her maybe her career is different. Like I feel like I think yeah. she ends up taking different roles then. I think not that like Nicole was so Oscar hungry, but like I because that is such the apex of that. I you know I've been saying the she word maybe economy do so much. Like but the like Stepford Wives, she doesn't do Bewitched, right? She... And instead of those, she she you know takes roles that you know are more geared towards an Oscar because. um I know I've said the word economy 8 billion times in this podcast, but like, it's true that like, that is the way that like those movies and especially the movies that Nicole Kidman does. That's the structure of, you know, that pyramid. And well, and perceptions changed negatively towards her somewhat in the culture as things do as people, you know, become oversaturated or win Oscars that maybe things like Margot at the wedding or birth could have been received more. It's possible. um, It's possible on the face of what they are and easily written off because people thought they were abrasive. Maybe she doesn't win up until two years ago and she wins supporting actress for boy erased. Oh boy. Maybe, maybe I'm just saying it's possible. I do think it's possible that Nicole Kidman doesn't have an Oscar. If Renee Selwiger wins. I also think that's a strong possibility. Yes. Uh, our next question comes from Nina. Spotify wrapped 2020 came this week, and my top artist of the year is Alexandre Desplat. I think he's my favorite composer, though I love a lot of scores from other composers as well. What are your top three or five uh, favorite scores amongst the Oscar nominees and winners? Uh, and then maybe a top three, five overall, regardless of nominations. And also if you guys have a favorite composer. I love this question. So, uh, broad conversation about favorite scores i mean joe and i were both radicalized by the hours i think you can imagine we both listen to the hours score a lot often enough a lot a lot a lot philip glass uh minimalist king love it definitely (laughs) on my list for top five nominated scores um i as most of the things i talk about skew um more recent i know there have been fantastic scores throughout the years i did include the omen uh jerry goldsmith's score for the omen because i think i just love that that was nominated that's um, one of my favorite original song nominees yes ave satani yes absolutely yes uh amazing. amazing hail satan is a oscar nominee for best song like we love it we love it yeah. <laughs> uh that is the translation for ave satani um so that one the hours I included Road to Perdition, Thomas Newman's Road to Perdition score, which I think is incredibly underrated and absolutely gorgeous to listen to. Um, I decided to poke at you specifically by including Hans Zimmer's score for Inception, where as much as we joke about the, you know, the big wanging horns or whatever, it's perfect and iconic and plays out through the slow down edith piaf you know Mm -hmm. yeah and then i did i cheated and i put in a double entry for nicholas bretel i put his moonlight score and his if beale street could talk score which i think nicholas bretel is on there it's absolutely absurd to me he didn't win for if beale street could talk i think it's the finest score of the decade it's amazing um I also put Mika Levy for uh, Jackie. Yep. I, it is not controversial to me. That is genius. Um, uh, as far as non-nominated, also Mika Levy's work for Under the Skin is amazing. Yes. Um, it wasn't nominated, I don't think, if I remember correctly, but the uh, Beasts of the Southern Wild score um, yes. is one that I go to a lot. And then as far as winners, I put Dario Marinelli's uh, Atonement score. Clacky, 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 clack. Love it. We love it. 
You love a typewriter People always, score. Uh, when, they, when writers do the prompt on Twitter of like, what scores do you listen to when you're writing? I always <laughs> want to say the atonement score has literal typing in it. It does. So my, my list of top five non-nominated scores, and so many of my favorite scores went unnominated. So I also had Beasts of the Southern Wild. It is a gorgeous uh, arrangement by Dan Romer and uh, director Ben Zeitlin. I cheated again. I did a double entry for John Murphy for his scores for Sunshine and 28 Days Later, the Danny Boyle films that were just astounding and and propulsive and wonderful and got so listenable. Clint Mansell's score for The Fountain is Oh, God, epic, yes, of course. Epic and gorgeous and perfect, and it's insane. that I know The Fountain was a flop in many regards, but... Uh, That's probably one of my top should five have been nominated. period. We've talked about The Door and the on Floor the on this podcast, and I love Marcelo Zarvos's score for The Door and the Floor, the one that everybody thinks is the score for Never Let Me Go, because it was used in the Never Let Me Go trailer, but it is not. Uh, Rachel Portman has a score for Never Let Me Go, and it's actually quite good as well. Uh, and then my fifth one is a personal fave uh nancy wilson's score for almost famous is so evocative to me and like that it exists among all of those song drops in that movie and still retains its own character so strongly it's such a you know has such a theme to it is uh, wonderful next question comes from Anne. if you could cast a heist movie starring only character actresses of a certain age who would you pick and what would be their specialty in the heist all right, so I initially went from like a soft Ocean's Eleven, Ocean's Eight uh, template a little bit, um, in that like you want to have your Danny Rusty or your you know Sandra Bullock, uh, Kate Blanchett like duo at the top of your ladder. So I'm casting Judith Light and Debbie Allen in the, those oh roles uh, to be to be our leaders. I think you need an inside man. Uh, for lack of a better term, uh, which I'm casting as Stockard Channing, you know, perhaps a society matron or something who ends up being their in. Um, you need a safe cracker. That's Rita Moreno. You need a document forger. That's Lily Tomlin. You need a tech expert, which for me is Mary Kay Place. You need somebody who's like ex-law enforcement, who, you know, has a little bit of expertise in that regard. That, to me, I think, obviously, is Ethapatha Merkerson. And... Spectacular. uh, You need sort of like a honeypot, somebody who can sort of like flirt their way into uh, information or access. And I am casting Shelley Long, who I know isn't necessarily a character actress. She's, you know, but like, she's been on the shelf long enough that... uh, Sally Kirkland robbed again. (laughs) <laughs> yes. All right. What are yours? I I I thought more vaguely about this. Okay. Um. First of which, it is a hate crime that you did not cast Marco Martindale. I thought she would be too obvious. I thought anytime you talk about character actresses of a certain age, everybody says Margot Martindale, and I love her. But I wanted to go a different way. You did not cast a villain who I am just going to give you Angelica Houston. Oh, perfect. Perfect. You also didn't cast a celebrity cameo as themselves, which I, hmm, who do we, I'm going to cast Tina Turner. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yes. Um, and I guess you also didn't cast like a weirdo, like the person who just like in the group scenes has like the one weird comment that they move past 
that is like right. you know a punchline for the audience. Right. That's like they're just there to be weird. Aquafina and I um, yep. I am contractually obligated to make that person be Beth Grant. Of course Beth Grant. Thank you. Thank you Beth Grant. Yes. All right. Next question. Uh, anyway, yes. um, I look forward to our tens of millions of dollars we make off of this. Please movie. give us money to do this. I want to make this movie What's now. the title of this movie and what are they stealing? Are they just stealing money? Yeah, who doesn't like money? That's the yeah, title of just, it also. They're just getting some money. The title of it like is money. Who Doesn't Like Money? <laughs> All right. Our next question comes from Amy, and she is asking, what are your favorite and least favorite TIFF venues and why? She says, P.S. I'm sorry, the Scotiabank escalator always breaks when we have guests in town. It does happen that way. It, it does be, Amy, it does be like that sometimes. Out there. Yeah. This is not a brag. This is not a brag. I'm just pointing it out. I have never had the Scotiabank escalator break on me. You're asking for it to break on you the next time you set foot on it, Christopher. Don't tempt fate like that. Anyway, I love that we got TIFF-related questions. I love it, too. Okay, what are your favorite and least favorites? Okay, so for ambiance, I go with the Princess of Wales. I love just sort of, when I'm seated at the Princess of Wales, just sort of like sitting back, looking at the whole, you know, proscenium and and, and theatricality of it all, and I, I feel very special. Um, I think for comfort, I'm very basic. I like the big rooms at Scotiabank because I can, again, walk all the way up to the top where angels fear to tread and where everybody gives up and takes a lower row. And if I go all the way to the back, I can get a seat all by myself, which is uh, comes at a premium at a film festival like this. For audience uh, uh, environment, I do love the Ryerson, especially for Midnight Madness stuff. I also have that little back row at the Ryerson with the secret staircase on the side that I love. And for least favorite, we've talked about it before, but the IMAX at Scotiabank is a pain in my ass. Yeah, I avoid scheduling anything there. Me too. What Though are your I did faves? get to see Lady Bird and IMAX, which is a brag that, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I treasure dearly. Yeah. Um, ooh, I didn't think about the Scotiabank IMAX. Um, I mean, my least favorite, I'm just going to be honest, I'm a very... I try to be a very practical person. It's probably the Ryerson. Yeah, it I knew you were going to say that. Comparatively a schlep. It is. And unless, like me, you stayed at the uh, the Chelsea Hotel on uh, Young Street. Um, sure. The first sure. year I went. I've also never done Midnight Madness, and I might do. I always see it's the movies, tough. but I don't go to the mid uh, yeah like you know me i hit a brick wall on like day three well and also um, the big midnight madness one is either the first or the second night it's usually the first night and you're putting yourself behind the eight ball when you volunteer to stay up until 2 30 in the morning on the first night and the rest of the festival you're just a fucking zombie more right. so than you already are when it's the busiest days um i also just feel like the screen is so far away comparatively and it feels like kind of small. They fixed that at the Roy Thompson, but the Roy Thompson's also my least favorite. Yeah, I don't love the Roy Thompson. The Roy Thompson has such so many odd angles in that place. Like it just does not seem like it should have ever been a place right. to watch movies. Though sometimes it's wild what you can see there. We saw Clemency there together. We did. Which like I'm sure it was the hugest screen that yep. that very good ever. movie was uh unfortunately played on. Yeah. Um Watch Clemency, guys. Um, my favorite venue, like, I want to say it's the Winter Garden because I do like uh, watching a movie among the leaves. But it usually has, like, the worst acoustics. Yeah. Um, 
So I'll probably just say the light box. I I will be um, an elitist and I will say the uh, Shishi Theater, but they do have the most comfy seats. Oh, that's interesting. That's a good point. They do have very so comfy I'm seats. Say the light box. All right, good. All right. Uh, Seth then asks, uh, in reference to the Nutcracker and the Four <laughs> Realms, which of the Four Realms are you? I have many thoughts. Go for okay, it. Okay, so I, I have fewer just, thoughts. Just as a recap, the four realms are the land of sweets, land of amusements, the land of flowers, the land of snowflakes. Please remember that the regent of the land of snowflakes is an ice-covered Richard E. Grant. (laughs) I mean, that gives it a big advantage. Obviously, the land of sweets appeals to me, but... um... You are the, you are Kira Knightley as the Sugar Plum Fairy, one of our more underrated camp performances of the. She's a goddamn blast in that movie, like honestly and truly. As I told Chris before, uh, if you watch this movie this season, it is canonically Christmas adjacent because the Nutcracker is a Christmas object. So there, they tried it. Disney tried it. They sure did, and God bless <laughs> but, them for uh, trying it. Try it with more things. Although, like, they tried it with uh, Artemis Fowl, too, and that was bad. So maybe, like, don't always try it. But, like, try it with the Nutcracker in the Four Realms. Nutcracker in the Four Realms, famously directed by Lasse Hallstrom. <laughs> exactly. Co-directed. It's yes. also Joe Johnston. Yes. Um, I don't know. I'm probably... I am a winter queen. I you do are. like snow and stuff. Yeah. So I think that's me. I'm, I'm Richard E. Grant. All right. I, I love that for you. All right, next question. Are there any films slash episodes you have done that you cannot remember? This is from Jack. Cannot tell you how many there are. Oh, no. I mean, our joke was our Secretariat episode. We don't remember doing that. It's Um, a Seabiscuit episode. Yeah, the Seabiscuit episode. Um, Honestly, we're getting to the point because we've passed like two and a half years we're coming up on three years right i know of doing this yes that like there's so many it's sometimes it's that i forgot that we've done a movie and also it's that like i wish we i don't want to say that i want to do episodes again that sounds psychotic but like sometimes i wish that we had like held out on doing like Serena, yes, or cake, yes. Until we were more seasoned at this and had a, and more of no, a uh, better no, audio. Not more seasoned because like those episodes are still good. I still think cake is one of our better episodes. Um, it's 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 more so that like I don't know. You, we've just we've done it for a long time, and i guess i we should say there's plenty that we've held out on doing like the shipping news or reservation road or yeah um, i love that there are still some big guns still out there i always say that i can never remember actually talking about the fifth estate um (laughs) that's the perfect answer (laughs) uh or i tried to remember for a for an upcoming question and this i tried to remember what we thought of a love song for bobby long and i couldn't remember it for the life of me i only remember random hearts because we talked about the scene in the mall with the sales lady and how much like a 90 minute episode and we spend maybe an hour on that one scene because what a non-movie yeah but I, I, I weirdly going through our list of, of 
movies that we've covered, there's at least some little nugget in something where, you know, yeah. if, if, I, if I don't find a movie memorable, I remember a guest. Or if I don't find, you know, whatever our major discussions memorable, I'll remember a tidbit. And, uh, you know, I love that about us. <laughs> okay, so uh, next question from Patrick. Who are the Thob auteurs? The said Oscar Buzz auteurs. He says uh, Terrence Davies because he, there's multiple actress uh, contenders. I feel like the Terrence Davies movies, uh, namely House of Mirth, uh, uh, Quiet Passion, and Deep Blue Sea, was more of a critics thing than any real like Oscar contention. Rachel Vice came close, I will say, for Deep Blue Sea. I don't. Are you sure? She got some stuff for that. Let me look. She got up. like a New York's Critics Prize, but like that was the end of the road for that. New York's Critics Prize is nothing to sneeze at, though. That's one of the like you know major critics. Sure. Awards. Hold on, hold on, hold sure, please. Sure, sure. I thought she also got a Golden Globe nomination. Hold on. AP. Okay. All right. Maybe. I'm yeah, she did get a Golden Globe nomination to Rachel. Yeah. My respect to you, Rachel. I love you. Um, definitely. I mean, our most covered director is still Ridley Scott. Yes. And there's still more that we could do. Still so much uh, more. Famously Nutcracker and Four Realms director Lassa Hallstrom. He's on my list as well when I was making notes for this. Absolutely. Yep. There's people who feel like they should be on there, like Stephen Daldry, but, but aren't. Stephen Daldry is almost always money with Oscars, even though that's faded in recent years. Uh, but his whole thing was that like he makes a movie, he gets Oscar nominated. I mentioned Lassa Hallstrom. I also wrote down Edward Zwick, who we've talked about when we did our courage under fire episode mm-hmm. and our love and other drugs episode. But there's a lot of other ones that again, his whole thing is he's perfect for us, except his get- movies get one or two nominations. He's perfect for us with legends of the fall, but that got a few nominations and think maybe one for cinematography. Um, mm-hmm. Last Samurai is a perfect movie for us, but, Ken Watanabe gets nominated for Supporting Actor. Defiance is a perfect movie for us, but that got something, which I still don't understand. Score? Um, yeah. But that's... I would There's lo- also directors that, like, we could do a lot of episodes, but I wouldn't say they're at this head Oscar buzz director. Like, we haven't really fully gone in on Ang Lee like we could. It's true. Um, it's true. Ang Lee is definitely one of them. Uh... Eastwood, Clint Eastwood, definitely. Weirdly, yes. And like, again, somebody who will, uh, are, we're more reluctant to talk about, but like Woody Allen's got a bajillion movies we could do because his movies are yeah, always. We've never done a Woody Allen movie. Yeah, we should. We should bite that bullet. Like, you know, talk ourselves around it or something. I would love to do well, Everyone Says I Love You. I really would. <laughs> I would. I'm sorry. I would. All right. Good question, though. Next one from Stuart, who says, which movie previously discussed on this head Oscar buzz would be a great subject for a movie about a movie, a la Mank or the director, uh, the, the disaster artist? What would the movie be about? Who would write direct star? He says he would go with an Adam McKay dramedy about Jennifer Aniston's lofty Academy Award ambitions for cake. Jennifer Aniston would, of course, be played by Claire Danes. That is a great idea for a movie that I would love to watch. Uh, did you have any ideas, Chris? I want like a waiting for Godot esque <laughs> uh, existential uh, dark comedy about the making of something like Exodus gods and Kings. where Everybody <laughs> is basically sitting around like, what the fuck are we even doing here, man? Yeah. Like, 
Um, hmm. I, I I mean, like, there's there's cr- there's crazy movies that it's just like I just want to see the ins and outs of how they did that, like Mother, or like I want to see the vetting process for John Travolta getting away with his a love song for Bobby Long dialect. Yeah, it's true. I uh, put down Hannibal because I would love to watch a movie about like Uber the casting drama, Uber villain Dino De Laurentiis. Like I don't know who <laughs> we could cast who would be like I did. I sort of dropped the ball when it came to trying to cast these movies, but like I'm trying to think of like a big like over the top Italian performance as uh, Dino De Laurentiis for the Hannibal movie. You could also uh, cast, you know, Jodie Foster, the the Julianne Moore of it all. Um, get Herman Mankiewicz to play Gary Oldman instead of the other way around. Figure it out. I don't know. Uh, science, get on that. Um, yeah, I think that would be an interesting one. I, of course, would love to do an expose on the making of Miss Sloan, and we'd find out whether Aaron Sorkin really did secretly write that movie. <laughs> Obviously, The Bonfire of the Vanities has a huge production thing that was written extensively about and could easily have be made into a movie. The one I actually did cast is I would love a Natural Born Killers uh, expose on the Tarantino versus uh, Oliver Stone of it all, and... I said cast Joaquin Phoenix and Adam Driver, but I'm not sure who I would want to play who. I think you could do it either way. And maybe you could do it where it's like That's it's it's two movies casting. where they swap roles midway through. I want like a Diablo Cody-esque dark comedy character study of the uh awards publicist for salmon fishing in the Yemen. <laughs> like nothing to do with the production of the movie, nothing to do with the stars of the movie. Just the publicity but the person whose job it was to push that to movie. sell that movie. I love it. Yeah. And I want it to be like uh not that I want this person's life to fall apart at all, but I want it to be like uh this is what my life is now. Um young adult yes S yes um I love that. I hate my lifetime. Mamie Gummer plays that main character. Yes. <laughs> I want it to happen. All right. Um, next question is from Sam. Which This Had Oscar Buzz movie would be most improved by either one, a Macy Gray narration? Narration? I sound very drunk narration. when I say that. Narration. Uh, number two, a Terrence Trent Darby title song, a la uh, Frankie and Johnny. Or number three, a main character screaming about spoons, uh, a la Far and Away. Thank you, Sam. I think the correct answer is all of them. <laughs> all of them at once might be uh, too much chaos for one, but I like to. I spread them out. I did one for each. Oh, okay. What are yours? So the movie I would most like to have a Macy Gray narration for is La Divorce. I would very much like to have Macy Gray sort of commenting on these white people appraising art and then also her describing the red bag floating over the city of Paris, I think would be beautiful and lovely. And I would want to see that. They say that bag carried its intestines five miles. (laughs) That's what I want. That's the energy I want her to bring to the divorce. Um, I want Terrence Trent Darby to sing the words salmon fishing in the Yemen uh so bad i feel like that would be 
just over the opening credits and you know we'd all know exactly what it's about and for spoons my spoons no everybody back away it's my spoons um that's obviously i want to hear the late sean connery and finding forrester becoming obsessed with uh with his spoons my <laughs> you're, you're the spoon now, Fork. Yes, exactly. Okay, so here's what I said for a Macy Gray narration. I chose salmon fishing in the Yemen. That's also that, that's actually a fine that's choice. A, that's a good answer. Terrence Trent Darby title song. I chose Goya's Ghosts. <laughs> sure. And um, uh, the main character screaming about their spoons. It only makes sense that it's um, uh, it's complicated. Oh, it's in the it's in the kitchen. I love it. I love it. All right. That one, that, you know, sometimes I trick you. I get a logical answer. No, it's, it's, it makes perfect sense. All right. What's our next question? All right. Next question from Stephanie on the recent me and Orson Welles episode. Chris mentioned that he has an entire horoscope like mythology built around the before trilogy. He noted that he is a before midnight Celine while Joe is a before sunrise Jesse. So it got me curious. Can you expand on this philosophy? Um, uh, I feel like I am a before sunset Celine, and I am worried about what that says about me. Stephanie, don't worry. Uh, that I think is a, a good one. You uh, like to dance to uh, Nina Simone. You like to you know show up at book readings. That that sounds pretty cool. I She's think pretty. Um, yeah, I think before sunset is the most daring of the three in terms of just like I think that's those characters at their most nervy. And mm-hmm. I find that it would speak well of you. And um, I think, you know, there's many benefits to being the Celine as opposed to um, the Jesse. I am, as we mentioned, the Jesse because I am um, romantic and naive and given to facial hair. And um, I am a before sunrise because I, uh, I love the possibilities of things before they become uh, complicated <laughs> by reality. Yeah. Okay. So allow me to be your psychic friends network. Um, Come on, Miss Dion. Okay. Oh God. Uh, the, 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 the reason Twitter has been all worth it. We, um, we can't Dion go into it. It'll, 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 it, it will be derailed. Yeah. Um, uh, God, I love her. I still don't um, believe that she writes those tweets. I'm sorry, but I don't. Okay. <laughs> no, I think she does. I think she does. Um, okay, so a Celine is more like focused on ideals and ideas, and not so much like perfectionism, but like you, you are led by uh, fulfillment in your life, true to the kind of life you want to like live you have an idea in your mind of what it should be and you are going to follow that as a beacon whereas if you are a jesse it's more instinctual you are in the moment you are um not necessarily thinking about where something is going it's more impetuous um and then like what type of romantic are you is depends on the movie like yeah i think sunrise is the more optimistic yep. the more rosy um if you're a sunset person you probably have a foot in both doors but you're also like joe mentioned is the more like risky version yes um more willing to take a leap 
one way or the other. Yep. And Midnight, I think, is like the hard line, <laughs> reality, pragmatist, yeah. uh, looking at all the scars and all and still finding something beautiful and romantic about it. I think that's well. I am absolutely a Midnight Celine. Yes. All right. Devin asks us, can you get can we get your picks for the Razzie winners among the movies you've done for the podcast? This is a little different than we've done from uh previous mailbags and other like right. landmark episodes for us where we do our best. What would we say is the yeah. worst? So for worst film, we've talked about a lot of bad films, and we can talk about like the one that I enjoyed the least, and this isn't necessarily that, but like I think Worst in terms of everything that it says and represents, I picked Stonewall. Yeah. I just, you know, I just did. The gulf between what it could have been and what it turned out to be was really bad. I think every all the ephemera around it was bad. Um, obviously, Caleb Landry Jones was a bright spot, but not enough for me to escape uh, worst film. How dare you? No, he was not. <laughs> what was your pick for worst film? Uh, I also did Stonewall, um, and I did that for Worst Director as well. I didn't do Worst um, Director, but that's a good, that's a good pick. My worst actor would honestly probably be Brad Pitt in Meet Joe Black. Oh wow! I did not have him on my list. He does but... patois in that movie I without know. even I thinking know. about it. I know you're not wrong. Um, I had. I wrote down Adam Sandler for Men, Women, and Children, who I thought was pretty bad. I wrote down Nicolas Cage for Captain Corelli's Mandolin, because having watched that trailer again, because we did figure out that that was our uh, secret Nina Gordon uh, movie trailer. His (laughs) accent in that is just so bananas. I can't get past it. I wrote down our recent discussion about Zac Efron and me and Orson Welles. We thought he was uh, overmatched. I actually ended up going with uh, Liam James for The Way Way Back, which I do kind of feel bad about because he was uh, young in that movie and... A baby. I don't want to pick on him, but we mentioned the uh, Lucas Hedges interview that our friend Matt Jacobs did at HuffPo, and he mentioned that he was up for that award and that award, that role, and didn't get it. And now all I've been able to think about was how much I would have liked The Way Way Back better probably would have been good in it uh if it was a lucas hedges joint okay worst a- okay maybe i rescind <laughs> this movie is getting a lot of airtime this episode suddenly um i maybe rescind brad pitt and put in john travolta for a love song for bobby Long. this is why i was trying to remember what we thought about that movie because i'm like do i put because in because he's a- really embarrassing in he it. is right okay that's what i thought yeah all right my worst actress pick is a double uh double nom for Natalie Portman in Goya's Ghosts and The Death and Life of John F. Donovan. Somehow uh, our, my two least favorite Natalie Portman performances ended up being like within three weeks of each other on this podcast. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, I hate to say Natalie Portman, but it's gotta be Goya's Ghosts. Yeah, it really does. I'm sorry. The other thing is sorry about it. we love actresses. Like Even when actresses are in bad movies or are giving... Uh, odd performances i tend to give them a wide breath and so like i'm not going to say jennifer aniston and cake even though we talk about jennifer aniston and cake sort of as a punchline a lot but uh or naomi watts and diana or anything like that um speaking of diana though my worst supporting actor uh probably goes to naveen andrews in diana who i almost did um 
Diana as worst picture. Yeah. The the other one I had for worst supporting actor uh was Michael Keaton for Much Ado About Nothing. Yeah, that makes sense. Um I chose Robert Downey Jr. for Natural Born Killers. Oh, he's a lot. <laughs> he's a lot. Just let's let's take it down to a 9, sir. Like out from the rafters of it. He's operating at a at 24 yeah, in that movie. He is. That's true. And for worst supporting actress, I had a hell of a time. Again, I love supporting actresses. I will uh Yeah, this isn't fun for us. I I mentioned I wrote down Cody Horn for uh Magic Mike even though That was my answer. I mean, I think it's the right answer. I I hate again, I hate to pick on. This is why we hate the Razzies. I hate to pick on it. But like um She's bad. She's bad in a very good movie, and she sticks out because of it. I also wrote down Laura Dern and Dr. T and the Women because I don't know what the hell's going on there. She was the thing that I liked about that movie. Yeah, I remember that. Dr. T and the Women would also be uh, up there for Worst Picture. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Do you have a worst screenplay pick? I feel like with some of the dialogue we've had to deal with... Men, Women, and Children is really bad. It's really bad. Yeah... That's that could be it. That or like an unfinished life. Yeah, although I I found myself charmed by an unfinished life, and maybe I'm just remembering the bear. You, um, yeah, you're just remembering Bart the Bear. Bart too. the Bear too, our beloved Bart the Bear too. Yeah, and his name is Einar. Suburbicon like has a yeah. script too. Yeah. All right. Sorry, Cohens. All right. I like the Cohens care about that movie. No, I don't think they do either. Next question. Uh, from Keegan, who asks, since there was a second best exotic Marigold Hotel, what other This Had Oscar Buzz film deserves a sequel, and what would you call it? Carp Fishing in the Yemen. <laughs> I love that. All right. Salmon Fishing in the Thames. <laughs> salmon, fishing, salmon Fishing in the in the, in the the Erie Canal. Yeah. Um there are no salmon in the Erie Canal. I hate to break it to you. Okay, mine are, I have two options for this. One of which is to Jillian on her 38th birthday. <laughs> because, you know, it was going to happen just that very next year. And uh, mm-hmm. at least then Claire Danes and her friend are one year older. So it's, you know, marginally less creepy when his friends uh, hit on her. Uh, and then the next one is, I want a sequel to Random Hearts called Specific Hearts. <laughs> and maybe it's about our sales girl in the uh, in the one scene we remember from that movie, but that's about it. Um, I also thought of Ladies in Mauve. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye to Marwin. <laughs> sure, of course. Um, <laughs> you are now leaving Marwin. To Marwin. <laughs> you are. You have now left Marwin. Yeah. Um, the other others. Right. Much to do about something. Um, and I bottom eyes emoji Huckabees. Wow. Bye. <laughs> Good night, sir. Okay. Next question. Uh, yes. The next question from Doug. Are either of you interested in visiting the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures when it opens and is safe to do so? Uh, what would you like to do with the museum if you were in charge of it? Um 
Uh, yes, I'm very interested in going to yes. this museum. Yes. Uh, its new opening date is set for September, um, if that date actually happens. Um, what would I do with the museum if I was in charge of it? Okay, the photos of the theater yeah. in the museum are intense. And I, if I could be in charge of it, I would be in charge of programming that theater. Yes, yes. Now, would you have, like... um like Disney World style animatronic reenactments of of speeches of you know memorable Oscar moments and just have oh, it. Oh, now that would be cool. You could play that in like the pre-show before whatever movie you're going to program. So you could like play Jane Fonda's speech and then clue. Oh, like doing the Alamo Drafthouse version of screening things at the Academy Museum would be my fucking dream. Like absolutely, where it's just speeches and red carpet moments and little tidbits and whatever, I would die and go to heaven. Also, you would could uh, program a series of movies where the Oscars happen within a movie, such as um, The Bodyguard and The Naked Gun 33 and a Third. and The Oscar. Uh, right. Yes, exactly. So um, I would do that as well. Yeah. I will say, I just want to mention, when I toured Warner Brothers Studios list this past February... Um, on out on on my way out of Los Angeles when I was in LA in February, we did drive past the site of uh, the still being uh, built Academy Museum, and I was so excited. But when I was at the WB tour, I got to uh, hold an Oscar statue, and more of that in the Academy Museum for sure. Like, ab- like mm-hmm. allow people. If I'm in charge of the Academy Museum, I get to hold every Oscar that has ever been given out. Yes. Yes. Also, again, um, the Academy Museum should one by one every year declassify vote totals from the beginning and like move forward. (laughs) And so it's like, so then we would have people make the pilgrimage every year and like have to like sign a non-disclosure so that like you can see it, but you can't ever talk about it. And uh, it becomes just your little secret. I would... I think they would, uh, all that would immediately come out. Homosexuals aren't good at secrets. (laughs) Yes, it would be a class action suit against every homosexual. They would be on Reddit, you know, (laughs) like spoilers for every single TV show. Yep. But no, I think one by one, year by year, like declassify it, like the Kennedy documents. Like, uh, you know, and then you're just waiting for it. You're just waiting for, uh, you know, I don't know, 1968. How close? How close were the others besides uh, Streisand? And, I want to uh, pour over Hepburn. it and know the single nomination got that got the lowest votes ever. Oh yes, or like the lowest like per capita vote or whatever, something like that. Again, of, all of like, what the Academy. But again, but you go into like a secret room and like only you are there and like they like non redact like the the lines one by one. I think it would be very dramatic <laughs> and fun. All right. All right. Allison asks us, so there are several movies that you guys like talking about as future episodes, like The Lovely Cats, The Shipping News. But are there any technically eligible movies that you guys hate thinking of and would want to avoid for whatever reason? Okay. So you brought up Woody Allen earlier. Yes. We half joked to each other one time that we would do a mini series on scandal directors and never mention their name. Woody Allen, <laughs> Roman Polanski, uh, Dustin Hoffman, who directed something, I think, at some point. Um, I mean, the like, there's certain things that you know exist, but like, it's 
for us building an episode, I think it's about making the conversation fun and light. And like, yeah. there's movies that I would absolutely like be fascinated to watch for these purposes, but wouldn't really, you know, make for an interesting conversation. Like, uh, the Paul Bettany movie Creation, right? Which absolutely had Oscar buzz. Yeah, and I just can't fathom us being able to create fun conversation around it. Yeah, um, that is my feeling. A little bit. Sorry, go ahead. Continue. I was going to say that's just that's a little bit more. I think when we're deciding what movies to do, yeah, that comes into play rather than like we're trying to tiptoe around gross things yeah. we don't want to talk about. So I had a couple different, we talked, obviously Woody Allen, the Roman Polanski of it all, even though there are films by both of those directors that I definitely want to do. I mentioned, uh, everyone says, I love you. I also deeply want to do carnage. Um, but we'll talk about that at a later date. Uh, I wrote down something like funny people where it's just like, I don't want to talk about fucking justice mm-hmm. for Adam Sandler. Like I'm over that. I'm well over that. I mean, there's a few movies to like movies like that, where it's like, yes, we've had, like they had Oscar buzz, but it's like they're also in the conversation in ways that aren't this. Yeah. That like you don't need us talking about funny people. Well, this is sort like, of where I met with Heat too, where it's just like right Heat. I don't want to be the like you know turd in the punch bowl about Heat. It's not like I don't like Heat. I like Heat. I think Heat is very good. But like that's what the whole episode would be: is me assuring you that I like Heat as I bring up things that annoy me about a the movie or be the phenomenon of the movie or see everybody's weird ass obsession with Michael Mann. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, and like, we've done movies like that, yeah. you know, we've done like magic Mike, we've done Zodiac, but I think when we've done those, I mean, a, the pandemic, we've tried to, you know, like make things brighter and happier and you know, whatever, but also like we can maybe bring something to the conversation that, or feel that we can bring something to the conversation that's not already there. Right. I don't really know what we can say about heat that right. hasn't been said. This is why I'm very reluctant to do something like Billy Lynn's long halftime walk because like blank check put their stamp on it so definitively that like what I'm not bringing anything else to that. You know what I mean? Like I can't right. uh, compete with any of that. Like that's that's that or some of these things just need time. Like that's a relatively recent movie that like, yeah, there's also something that like sometimes i just don't want to have to see a movie that i didn't like again because it's not interesting in the way i didn't like it like last flag flying or it's i'm just like i didn't like it it wasn't that interesting of a movie to not like and i don't want to talk about it um or something like i also wrote down something like for colored girls where it's just like i have no business talking about that film and uh if a guest wanted to do it and like they absolutely they want to take the lead Um, on that that is yeah fine but i don't need to be you know jumping in here with you know opinions on any number of the uh angles on for colored girls for sure yeah all right final question from bia knowing what little we know about the famed flora plum from the last two decades of its tortured history who would you cast in it now who are the claire danes and russell crowe of 2020 who would dare dangle from that cursed trapeze? Bia, we appreciate any and all Flora Plum questions. We are, once again, the uh, the great Flora Plum historians on this podcast. Yeah. Jodie Foster's long-delayed torture production that never happened about the circus. Um, I kind of want Russell Crowe to be mo-capped into... Oh, no. Uh, the, or the Russell Crowe character, whatever... 
to be a mo-capped Andy Circus as some like huge buff dude because oh. I want to see the circus at the circus. <laughs> oh my god, shut up. I hate you so much. I was like, where is he going with this? Oh no. Oh god. Circus at the circus. Goodbye. Um <laughs> I was trying to think of the Claire Danes. I'm like, clearly, given recent Hollywood casting decisions, like, she would be Lily James, because apparently everybody is Lily James yeah. these days. But I actually do think that might Lily actually James be a role for her that would Pamela work. Anderson, that is Looney Tunes. This would be a much better role for her. Play Flora Plum instead. Somebody give Jodie Foster the money to make Flora Plum, and then we'll get Lily James off of that movie, and we'll cast somebody else. Somebody Was it you who mentioned Florence Pugh for uh, for Pamela Anderson? I was like, that's wild. You said Florence Pugh. Who did I say? I said, um... Mm. I don't remember now. Now that's going to drive me crazy. It is going to drive me crazy. Through days worth of text. Anyway. Um, Russell Crowe... Sebastian Stan's good casting. Sebastian Stan, I think, is really good casting as Tommy Lee, and I'm very excited about that and would uh, would buy a ticket for that. Who was the Russell... So Russell Crowe, when this movie was starting to get talked about being made, it was, what, the late 90s, early 2000s? Yeah. So, like, who was what Russell Crowe was then. I'm pre- if I, unless I'm misremembering, I think even Ewan McGregor was on board, but then Big Fish happened. I feel like Big Fish probably also really was the final nail. In the Honestly, like movie. Michael Fassbender is not a bad choice for Flora Plum 2020. No. 2021, I guess. Not at all. We're, um, we're running out of days in 2020 that Flora Plum could conceivably drop on us surprisingly. <laughs> If, it's honestly probably Adam Driver. I was thinking, I didn't want to bring him up because I had brought up Adam Driver on f- multiple occasions in this podcast, and I didn't want to be the psycho who keeps saying Adam Driver, but like that's not a bad idea. The thing is, Adam Driver is more of a character actor than uh, than Russell Crowe was, right. and like Russell Crowe was firmly like leading man. Um, yes. And I feel like we have few people who are pegged into that one box and again partly because franchises eat them up yeah Um, but maybe this is a movie that you liberate a franchise person like i wonder if like chris hemsworth could do flora plum maybe maybe he's a strong man maybe that's the the role in the circus (laughs) is that he's a strong man i don't know that's the beauty about flora plum is it is a unopened box we could uh we could project it's Schrodinger's film. It's uh, everything and nothing at this point. Once again, our DMs are open if you have one of the original scripts of Florp. <laughs> yes. Thanks for all these questions, you guys. This was you guys. Once again, fun. sorry we couldn't get to all of your questions. It's a, an embarrassment of riches that you give us, and uh, we love you, and we hope this is a, a lovely repayment of that uh, love and affection. Indeed. Have a happy uh, New Year celebration. When does this drop? Is this drop before the New Year? Yes. It does. It drops right before the new year. All right. Have a safe, um, in indoors and isolated uh, New Year's celebration. And we will do this. Yes, we want all of our listeners next happy year. and healthy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> all right. And we will see you. We've got some already some really fun movies lined up for the new year. And we're very excited. Catsisode. Catsisode is Cats coming. Catsisode is less than a month away. I feel like it is... Uh, uh, a, a beacon, a challenge that we have to meet accordingly yes. somehow. We will do our best to make it uh, worth your wait. All right. 
Thanks, guys. See you in the new year. Thanks, guys. That's our episode. If you want more of This Hat Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, tell our lovely listeners where they can find more of you and your stuff in the new year. Sure. I'm on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I'm on Letterboxd as Joe Reed. Reed spelled the exact same way. And I am also on Twitter at Chris V. File, that's F-E-I-L, also on Letterboxd under the same name. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts now, including Spotify. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility, so please... Be the Flora Plum screenplay leak out into the world of good reviews for us and make sure everybody knows uh, what we're all about. Uh, that's all for this week. We love you. We hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Bye.